With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, welcome to episode 172 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with Dave Park. And our guest today on this Wednesday episode is Holden Triplett. Holden is a former FBI counterintelligence agent. He served in here in New York. He served in Moscow, Beijing, Washington, D.C. Uh, did a year up at the White House with the National Security Council. Uh, real depth of experience and um, also working eyeball to eyeball with uh, the uh, Russian FSB and the Chinese state, what was it, state public security section? Yeah, the NPS, Ministry of Public Security. Um, so, yeah, Holden, I mean, I really appreciate you coming into the studio and doing this interview with My us. Pleasure. And um, I think, you know, I was telling you before the show, we've interviewed a number of counterintelligence people who come from uh, various perspectives. But I think yours is very unique and um, and contemporary. Um, so I'm uh, I'm very interested to hear from someone like you who is an insider, um, especially about like the culture of these institutions, these foreign intelligence institutions that we um, have various types of interactions with. Not all of them so pleasant, um, as opposed to you know what I can do is speculate, and I can tell I can tell people what I read in the newspaper. But you actually lived it, so. I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah, no, I'm happy to talk about it. It, it was uh, really fortunate to have that experience, and so I was uh, happy to share it. Um, so uh, most of our shows, we start off asking our guests sort of about, you know, your upbringing and, you know, what were, your path was into uh, federal service in your case. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that journey was like on your end. Sure. Um, so I, funny enough, I mean, my, my dad was actually in the FBI for 30 years, um, although I, I never considered going into federal service. Um, it was kind of his thing. He did it, so I was, I was going to go in a totally different direction. Although I will say we grew up with a, he, he came in like 68 um, until 99, so it was during the Hoover era, and we had a lot of um, Hoover pictures all over our house, <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover <laughs> pictures. And um, I actually thought the guy was my grandfather. My, my grandfather had passed away before I was born. So for the first couple of years, I, I always thought they were like, grand. It was my grandfather, and so I'm, I'm sure I'll have a you know a psychiatrist unpack that at some point. <laughs> help me through some things. But anyway, so maybe it was foreordained where I was going to end up um, at, at the end of the day. Um, 
but uh, I was actually um, in in law school um, at, at Berkeley um, during 9-11 and um, you know I as for as a lot of people felt that was sort of the calling of my generation like I had to participate I needed to be a part of it um, and you know there were so many things to protect our country. So, I mean, the joke I make is I, you know, traded in my uh, Birkenstocks for a Glock and, um, and went on my way. I was going to say, not yeah. too many FBI agents come out of Berkeley, do they? I so, mean... so I'm, I, for a while, I was the only one. And the way I know this is, um, I, they're the, the, um, head of alumni, um, are in recruiting at, at, um, uh, Berkeley Law School. He would always hit me up with people who are interested in the FBI. And he's like, hey, I'm sorry, hold on, I keep calling you. He's like, but you're the only one. <laughs> he's like, there, there's no one else who went to Berkeley who's now in the FBI. I think there are a couple now, but anyway, back in, back in those days, um, there, there weren't that many. So it, it's not a, not a typical trajectory. Right. Um, and so, but I will say, you know, a number of my friends went into federal service on the kind of prosecutor side from Berkeley. So it just uh, tends to be a different pathway. Did he give you statistics? statistics of how many go into the MSP? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> a lot of, yeah, going into, uh, <laughs> yeah. going over, overseas in China. And uh, I will say there is a, um, a fairly uh, uh, leftist contingent um, uh, at, at, I mean, you know, at Berkeley, it, it, it fits the stereotype in some ways. But there's also, there, there are some fairly middle of the road and even some people who are kind of, you know, on the, on the right side of things there too. So, uh, but anyway, it was an exciting time. But anyway, so um, soon after I graduated, um, I was at a firm and applied for um, uh, a number of different agencies. The Bureau actually moved faster than others, um, and this is right around the time the 9-11 report came out, which kind of designated the, the Bureau to be sort of the main counterterrorism arm, and um, that's what I wanted to do. And so I applied and, and, um, and then entered um, right at the beginning of 2006, went to Quantico. And you had some interesting experiences growing up, international experiences, living in Russia, uh, Japan during college. Um, that, was this already sort of in your mind that this was going to sort of lead you into a national security pathway? I, maybe. I mean, I, I, I didn't plan it um, <laughs> that well. It, it just sort of, I, I, I took a gap year after high school and, and you know, maybe it was sort of always in the blood and went to, um, went to Russia um, back in 1993 and when it was a total, total mess. But it was a really a great experience. Only did I learn, like, about 10 years later, my dad told me he was still in the bureau at the time and he was sort of freaked out while I was there. He was working counterintelligence Russia <laughs> while I was in Russia. Yeah. But it was a very different time. Everything's kind of starting to fall apart. So it wasn't the same sort of threat level that they've been dealing with, um, you know, during the Cold War. Um, but no, I would always so be super- a second generation FBI counterintelligence agent. Uh, yeah, there, there I, I should am. be a series of novels written about your family. Is- I, <laughs> there's a lot of pressure on my kids, right? They got to <laughs> right, come right. into this in some you way. Can't hide so, nothing. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. Um, Start that paranoia early, right? <laughs> <laughs> I tried to. I mean, I may have a few cameras at home, just you know, maybe all over their phones. Um, but no, I, it, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sort of always interested in the international aspect of it and, and, um, you know, I learned Russian and then I'd spent some time in Japan and I'd spent some time in, in China actually after law school. And so I'd kind of, a lot, I always liked going overseas. And so that kind of drew me in to do something. The Bureau isn't typically, um, you know, the Bureau is mainly domestic, um, right. but does have some overseas offices, which I um, was fortunate enough to get to. Um, but what's really changed is what used to be a really domestic mission. I mean, as you all know, I mean, the, the line between what's domestic and foreign now has pretty much been obliterated, right? right? So, I mean, just take the cyber world, like you have an individual in 
whatever country in the world basically doing almost you know what they could do in person you know um, via a computer to someone in the United States and so you know is that an is that an FBI role is that another agency's role you know it's hard to say what's domestic and foreign now so that mission's really kind of expanded now while you were in law school and 9-11 went down you were actually thinking about going a different way right you started thinking about going in the military I did I did I thought about going to the military I mean that's what everyone you know it's, you look like we were all going to go to war and then you know soon after you know to go to Afghanistan Afghanistan and Obviously, um, very soon after that, um, we went into um, Iraq when I was still in, in law school. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was very close to doing that. Um, and then, you know, just sort of talking with people, I thought that my skill set would be better used in, in the Bureau. Um, n nothing against the military by any means, but it's just some of the things that with the law background, my, my dad yeah, had done, right. I wanted to do investigations and interviews and some of that, that. That's where I kind of got drawn to more or less. Yeah, that's great. And so you go through Quantico and... Uh, I think I think we talked about Quantico just on the last episode with uh, Greg Schaefer. Oh yeah, great. Yeah. Um, I, before we before you hit the ground in uh, in New York City, uh, before we get to that, I mean, any fun stories, Quantico stories that you want to toss out there? So I have kind of long hair, and this is this is about the length I had when I went to Quantico, which is not Quantico length, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> not, not on J. Edgar Hoover's I, time. I, I yeah, no, 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 sir. <laughs> so I mean, I was at a law firm, and I you know I kept it professional, I thought, but. Um, yeah, I mean, there was still a sort of a um, the the idea that you you should have sort of a high and tight while you're while you're there, or at least you know sort of a little bit more uh, kept than than I did kept it. So when I I did my um, PT test, uh, you know, push ups is a big part of it, and so you know, I'm doing this, and the guys sitting there watching me, and I'm one, 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 and I look up, and I'm like, what's going on? Like I'm going as low as I'm touching the ground with my chest, and he's like, I'm sorry, your hair's in the way, so I, I can't really see if you're touching the ground at all. So. Anyway, that kind of fun hazing that went on there. So I ended up, um, yeah, buzzing it while I was there, um, just to, more tongue in cheek. But I got a lot of, hey, great haircut, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, there, it isn't a haircut; it's just buzz. Like there's nothing to it. So um, no, but it was a, it was a good time. Um, you know, it, it's interesting going through there. My class was average age was about thirty or thirty-one. I was thirty at the time. So a lot of second career people who had kind of gotten drawn in after nine eleven. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's not like the military; a bunch of eighteen-year-olds. No. And it, which it, it's a different mentality. So you know, there's not a. It's a little bit different. Although the the parts of that are the kind of the physical activity and kind of getting you into shape. That I think there's probably some similarities there in terms of uh, um, some hazing, some aggression with trying to get it. But you know, at 30, you're kind of like, dude, why is this guy yelling? Right. <laughs> We're at 18. Right. I'm sure you know it's yeah, a little bit yeah. different of a yeah. of an impact. I gotta on do you. better. Yeah. Run faster. Exactly. I'm like, well, I'll just go back to my law job. Like, <laughs> right. you know, it's not gonna work out. Right. But, um, but no, it was it was a it was a great experience, um, and uh, I actually ended, thought I was going to go back to San Francisco where we I processed out of, um, but um, uh, you know typical bureaucracy. The the bureau was at um, capacity in San Francisco for like the first time in forty years. Cause these high uh, cost of living offices are hard to fill, and so you can if you want to go to L.A. or San Francisco or New York, you can usually get there, and so. Um, my wife and I wanted to go back to San Francisco. She was from California, and anyway, but it was a, a two-week period where the bureau was at capacity. So it just the most bureaucratic process. You know, talking to them, they say, "Well, right, but the next in two weeks you'll be under you know FSL as they call it. They'll be under the the needs of the office." She's like, well, "Right, but that's not when you're processing." So, of course, no one in my class goes to San Francisco, and I ended up going to New York, which was great. But then the next class, like. Five people ended up going to San Francisco, none of whom wanted to go. So very, you know, typically you go to the needs of the bureau where right. they're going to send you that right. kind of thing and stuff. But anyway, it was a great experience. And if you're going to do counterterrorism in, in the FBI, New York is really the place to do it. So, why is that? 
Uh, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think part of it is, I think, the, you know, just being an, an incredibly diverse place and, but being a symbol um, of the United States in many ways. I mean, people think about New York um, and obviously Twin Towers and just but this, the, the entire skyline of New York, the economic power that's here. Um, and that's what a lot of people, I think, feel around the world, um, for better or for worse, can feel the economic power of the United States. Um, and so I think that continues to be sort of a, a focal point for, for outside people when they think about what's a symbol of the United States, right? And so Al-Qaeda's philosophy, right, they wanted to hit political, they wanted to hit military, and they wanted to hit economic, right? And so that's why they were trying to hit, you know, well, they hit the Pentagon, and they hit the Twin Towers, and, you know, obviously still unclear if they're going to hit the White House or the Capitol exactly, but somewhere in the political sphere. And so when you hit the ground working in the counterterrorism office here in New York City, um, okay, 9-11 is in the past. What, what, what's going on in the time frame when you, hit, when you get here? Yeah, so it's about five years later, um, not quite. Um, and so still big hole in the ground. Mm -hmm. No, you know, nothing had been built yet. Um, city was fighting with itself about things, and everyone was still just on edge kind of constantly. Um, and, uh, you know, there's just a number of cases, basically every couple of weeks we had a new sort of individual kind of, kind of trying to come through and, you know, cause mayhem, death in some unique way. Um, and so we were busy, um, lots of command posts running around, um, you know, kind of trying to get a handle on things. Really great experience working with like a huge number of different agencies in the U.S. government, um, overseas partners. Um, so it was, and really a lot of this had been built very quickly after 9-11, but it was still kind of coming together and coalescing, and so it was fun to be a part of that. I mean, I played a very small part kind of as a new agent, but, you know, trying to make those connections with people and to build that larger network to, prepare, to you know, um, basically protect, you know, the mm -hmm. United States and protect those countries. And it, it may seem obvious, you, you know, you see in the movies that, hey, that we can share intel with the UK or with the Dutch or whatever, but, like, there's a whole process, and it used to be extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and 9/11 really kind of broke down a lot of those barriers and needs for it. Um, and thankfully, we're kind of reaping the you know what we sow during that time in a good way. That um, we've set up those connections for you know, the fight that we have right now. So. What was it like being a rookie FBI agent coming to really the epicenter of counterterrorism in the United States? Um, I mean, overwhelming in some ways because it was just, you know, New York is just a huge city. And so to get your head around all that could be going on within the city um, itself was, was hard. Uh, and then on top of the fact that you have um, just so many federal agencies here and then the NYPD. Uh, and the, the NYPD itself is bigger than the entire FBI. Um, so they could just really, um, they had just an enormous amount of you know, power to kind of throw around. And so realizing that you were, you know, to do any, versus like if you're an FBI agent saying like, Oklahoma City or Kansas City, where I'm from, like then you know it's a you have a lot more power in that in that sense because you're there's just not as many agencies running around. Here you're one of many, and so you've got to learn how to cooperate, how to talk to people. You've got to how to figure out, you know, what is the NYPD? What are they worried about? What are their sort of equities in these types of things? And so that's hard, and that's a part I didn't really think was going to be a big piece of this, right? The mm -hmm. sort of like bureaucracy almost and navigating that, um, but that's as important of a part of it. Not as sexy by any means as the other pieces, but as important a part of it as, as anything else. I'm wondering, like, how uh, how heavily are we being targeted in this city? Were there any, like, near misses where you were just, like, really, like, that one got you sweating? No, 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 not at all. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, there, there were a number of things that, like, happened that, you know, I'm very happy that we had extremely capable and good overseas partners that helped give us information um, as well as other parts of um, 
you know, the U.S. government and the, the intelligence community, because um, there were a lot of things that came in. You know, they got things last minute, um, and you know, doing their best, and uh, no, no, not disparaging anyone at all. But um, and then we had to act very fast in order to kind of, you know, sort of play catch up. Because the, the the difference really, you know, as a, the bureau, which is you know, operates sort of a law enforcement and an intelligence agency, but with regards to people in the United States, um, you're, it's really much more so on almost the law enforcement side mm -hmm. of things because. You know, that everyone, whether a U.S. citizen or not, you get more or less the same rights, certainly with regards to the Fourth Amendment. Any person here in the United States gets that protection. Um, but so what that means is that there's just a whole, like, number of barriers to get through to meet, you know, needs of be able to, if you want to go up on a wire, if you want to be able to do other types of techniques um, in order to figure out what are these people doing. And so we might get one single piece of information about, hey, this individual is interested in, you know, joining a group and, you know, committing jihad. And it'd be, that would be the extent of it. And you're like, all right, now we, what do we do with that, right? <laughs> right? Because that's not enough in of itself to listen to their phones or to look at their email, but it's enough to do other things. You have to start building. And if they're like, and they want to do this in two weeks, you're like, okay, we've got a really short time frame in order to do that. So, um, so it was a pretty... It was fast-paced um, for a lot of that, um, which was, again, great as a new agent. That's what you want to get really, you know, they talk about New York as like dog years, right? Like one year, you, like it's equivalent to seven years in one of the other offices. Um, and I don't, you know, again, I'm bad about my, my brethren in other places, but I mean, I really felt like you get a lot in a really short time. So, you know, I, I went overseas pretty quickly on various operations and then was in Saudi Arabia and in various other places in the Middle East for a few months, um, you know, kind of doing some joint work um, with their services um, and did that pretty early on. The opportunities that wouldn't have been possible in any other office, um, but because of the work you do here, they want that experience and they're going to push it out overseas. On previous shows, when we've talked about the different authorities that like the CIA and the FBI have and why it's good for them to work together overseas and also in the United States sometimes, are there different authorities that the FBI has, that the NYPD does, yeah, or the that, NYPD does. That's a really good good conversation piece because people are under a lot of like misconceptions about like what the CIA does versus the FBI, especially domestically in the United States. Yeah. So I mean, one thing just to be really clear is like the CIA has to follow U.S. law. We should be very clear about that. If they don't, they get in trouble. I'm not, not going to say that that people have made mistakes in the past, but what that means is that the same protections that U.S. citizens have against the FBI or the police, like the Fourth Amendment or other things, that applies to the CIA too, applies to them. They do not have investigative authority to go and look at, um, you know, U.S. citizens. Um, they have certain intelligence uh, uh, powers that where they can essentially develop intelligence. Um, some of that can happen in the United States, but the vast majority of their resources are overseas in order to do that. Um, but the difference between, like, the, the Bureau and the NYPD um, so there's a lot of similarity. I mean, one is just sort of federal versus kind of state and local, right? I mean, they have, you know, wiretaps at the local level as, as we do. Um, and there's a lot of parallels where it really takes a very, um, uh, diverges a lot is with regards to national security investigations um, and the ability to use FISA, right? So this is something that I think in the, you know, in the last few years we've had some crazy investigations at the political, at the top level and all these different things. Right. Um, and there's been a bit of a misconception about, so I, as I mentioned, you know, Generally, the Bureau looks at um, as kind of using their law enforcement powers when they're dealing with people in the United States. The, the ex exception to that is if someone is a member of a or is associated with a foreign power. And then they can be treated sort of on the, under national security um, laws, which includes uh, FISA, right? So meaning that if someone is... Joins Al-Qaeda. Exactly. Um, and 
I don't need to show that they've committed a crime um, in order to potentially get a, a, a FISA to listen to their phones or to read their emails. I can show that they've, they've joined a foreign power that's hostile to the United States, and that's enough. Where versus, you know, if, you know, I went out and th they heard some information that I was trying to commit some sort of, you know, string of robberies or something like that. Like right. they would have to get up to a certain level of evidence, right, um, to prove in court in order to get what's called the Title III. Right. So it's very different. They'd have to basically show a crime was in, you know, being commissioned or there's information that's in the process of it or planning, et cetera, versus someone who is part of a foreign power just by the fact they're part of Al Qaeda or they're part of the Russian embassy or the Chinese embassy. That is enough in order to under FISA for them, an investigation to be opened up. They don't have to be a criminal. And FISA is, is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Yes. Thank you. Which has been we've had it for like 20, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. We, we, we've had it. 1980, right? 78? Um, we, we've, we've had it for, I'm blanking right now on when it first came into being, but I, I can tell you an interesting story because my, uh, my dad didn't have it. So there was no FISA back then. Um, and there's a number of cases about this, and it's really interesting. So let's think about this. If you are an FBI agent in San Francisco, as my dad was in the early 1970s, and the Soviets are building a new embassy, what is your ability to to go and you know make sure that the Soviets aren't doing all the horrible things that they were doing right. during that time. If you go and try to do something criminally, it's in an open court. It's in a record. And if the Soviets are worth a damn, they're going to go out and going to make sure they're going to read these things. And they're going to, oh, the bureau's up on my phone. Well, I'll, I'll switch and get a new phone number or whatever. I won't use the phone. So there was really no ability within the system in order to handle national security threats. Um, Hoover and his eminent wisdom at the time, <laughs> said, well, you know, those laws don't apply to the FBI in this circumstance <laughs> right. because this is national security, and um, so we're going to do what we need to do. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of court cases about some of the things that they did do. Right. Um, and, but there was no FISA. Um, all sorts of things happened. Um, a number of cases, COINTELPRO being one of them, the Bureau had a number of, of really horrible missteps. I and mean, this is a circumstances where really good people um, can do horrible things without the right type of oversight and controls. It happens all the time in the government, unfortunately. Not all the time. It happens with not a huge amount of infrequency, right. rather. Um, and uh, FISA came out of that, which is like, look, we need something outside of a normal criminal process that allows the FBI and potentially others um, to be able to use these tools when you have a foreign power. And right. that's what FISA. And so it came out of really in a sense of a way to protect Americans um, because it, it has a very specialized sort of system for it. Obviously, a lot of controversy around it, but the impetus for it was... was a, right. Was it, essentially one. that foreign governments do not enjoy American rights afforded by the Constitution. And if you're working for a foreign government, you also shouldn't enjoy those rights. So... Yes, I mean there, there's there's some nuance there, but they don't get the, they don't get the exact same level, right? Okay. And so um, there still is court process, right? Um, but in terms of what types of protections they get in certain, um, it's different. But partly what you have to do in a, in a FISA application, in many ways, is show that that foreign power um, is trying to do, um, you know, harm the United States, right? Um, and so there's a bit of nuance within it, um, you know, that, but I, I, the idea is that it is, it is a somewhat diff different system for national security because of how it affects our country at such a deep, visceral level, right, versus a crime, which is as horrific as it is, is a limited set of people that it's affecting. Now, right? how does FISA work when it is, say, a member of AQ 
or a ancillary of that because they're not a government. Yeah, so it was it was crazy. Um, you basically had to connect someone back to Osama bin Laden, like literally, like connect this person to this person to this person to this person. And then, you know, so there was a, at once that had been done, you had to just connect it to the, you know, the 10 people at the bottom if you had a new guy and okay, he's he's gotten recruited by this person. But then basically every court application had to show that it was going through the entire line of all these people. Wow. So um, it was a little bit of a difficult system at that time. There's been some changes that make it a lot easier um, now. Um, but it, it was, you know, that in terms of, the kind of you know bureaucracy that the bureau has to work through to do its job that's that's one of the layers that makes yeah. it very difficult so. and, it, and i mean i mean i imagine it's challenging because when you're dealing with non-nation state actors that that can start to move you know if we were to take yeah. the ira they're not a non-state actor right and then you say that a person's part of that or or whatever yeah it, it, exactly it could be abused right if you right. Just say because there's no i mean al-qaeda's not putting out their membership list right it's not on their website you can't look at our team right and click on that and find the whole list of people right in a similar way so um yeah if you don't it they want to make sure that there are rigorous rules surrounding how you know who's in that membership right because you're it's a pretty significant powers right to be able to go and and get into someone's privacy people don't want that to happen so there should be a high hurdle for that and and you know there is for the folks out there watching i appreciate you guys joining us tonight i just want to give a quick shout out actually to uh our podcast, our live stream here. There's a link down in the description to our Patreon page if you want to get all these episodes uh, ad-free without any advertisements. So, Jack, are you saying our sponsor tonight is the fine people watching this show? Yes. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join our patron. Viewers like you. <laughs> um, tell us then about making the jump from counterterrorism to counterintelligence. Yeah. So um, I, I, a couple things. I mean, just life. I mean, one, we were, as I said, we were kind of going pretty hard for a couple of years and wanted to do something that was a bit more regular. We started having kids and, you know, wanted to, wanted to be around and, and, you know, and, and be a full parent participant in, in every way. And um, and then um, we also had a, a pretty major change that was going on at the Bureau with regards to intelligence. Um, so, you know, after 9-11, one of the big things that changed was how the Bureau used intelligence. Um, and we don't have to go into the detail, but just to, at, a, at a broad level, it was, the Bureau's always used intelligence, but it's been basically um, sort of a eat what you kill, right? You develop intelligence for your case in order to go after your particular person, your group, and go for an indictment, and that's what your intelligence serves. Um, there was not a whole lot of sharing of that intelligence with other people, um, because if it didn't affect their case, they didn't need to know it. Um, but what changed after 9-11 is people realized that FBI was working on a number of, of matters, certainly in the counterterrorism counter world, um, that that information would be incredibly important, not only for other cases in the Bureau, but other members of the intelligence community. Mm -hmm. So needed a way to figure out how do you pull this information out of the cases, how do you, you know, aggregate it together and then put it into products that then you share with the rest of the community. Um, and so that was a, a really, a, it sounds very simplistic when I talk about it, but it was, it was a major shift. So I got pulled into helping doing that um, to kind of 
complete that. We started in New York. This is when Mueller was still the director, trying to make that shift, um, and started to really enjoy. We did intelligence and counterterrorism, but it was a little bit different. But started to really kind of enjoy the, the sort of the the process, the art of it, um, and started thinking about, um, you know, I wanted to be a supervisor, so I became a supervisor of a counterintelligence squad at that time. Um, I was pretty new. I had about four years in the Bureau, so it was, um, they made a rule right after that that you had to have six years after me, so I don't know if I should take that personally or not. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, I think I did a good job and, um, but, and did that for a couple of years, um, but really it was uh, enjoyed it. I, I was working on a... Um, a country that has to remain nameless, but they were had a, uh, a burgeoning uh, nuclear program, let's just say that. So, um, so they had a lot of individuals coming over um, looking to get information um, to build up, um, you know, uh, essentially they were doing proliferation um, work. Um, and so there was actually, it was a, it was a great transition because w within uh, counterterrorism, there was a lot of counterproliferation work mm -hmm. as well as concern about Al-Qaeda or other groups trying to get their hands on nuclear weapons or nuclear material to make a, a dirty bomb, radiological device um, and very similar sort of on the state actor side and so it was a good kind of uh, transition there. I, I imagine that this being a major you know metropolitan very cosmopolitan city but also with the United Nations here it, much as, it must be mayhem for you guys and, and the stuff you got to deal with. So it's really it, it is I mean and, and what's crazy and I don't know if everyone appreciates is so you know the United States and New York are the hosts of the United Nations um, and so in some ways um, but the, in, the missions that are here are being hosted by the UN. So while they have to have U.S. visas in order to enter the United States, their host is really the United Nations itself. Um, and that may just sound like kind of a strange, you kind know, of a weird nuance, but it makes a difference, right? Versus someone who is at a so the mission to the UN of, you know, say the Russian mission to the UN versus, say, the Russian consulate up here, right, which is, to, you know, which its relationship is to the United States. Um, it makes the U.S. government step a little bit more carefully, um, and with good reason, right? We're the host here, so if we're kicking everyone out all the time, how can we have the United Nations here if, you know, you're, if you're just because someone is from, say, North Korea or wherever else, you know, how can we kind of have them here? Um, but that adds an extra layer of complication, um, because obviously anytime they start doing something horrible, um, as uh, some of these countries do, um, and then when you want to, you know, you're doing an investigation and you want to PNG them, you know, declare them persona, persona non grata because you can't arrest them because they're on a diplomatic visa, um, there is a whole dance with essentially the UN, right, because it, it's affecting the politics mm -hmm. up there, right? And so if the U.S. happens to be in a, you know, intense negotiation with that country on a particular committee at the time that you want to take law enforcement action, it can be difficult. Um, and you told us that you opened up Operation Encore. Can you I, tell us about that? I did, yeah. So that was back when I was still on the counterterrorism side. Um, so that came out, um, you know, President Biden um, released uh, that the case, a bit about the case um, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, and essentially it was um, an intelligence uh, effort to, to really uncover, um, well, to look deeper into um, potential uh, support of the 9-11 hijackers by um, the Saudi Arabian government. Um, and so um, I was on a squad that still had what was called Pent Bomb, which was the Bureau's case for all of the events that had happened um, during 9-11. Um, it was mostly sort of a repository to run the, uh, um, the uh, prosecutions. Um, but I, as I started looking into it, 
there was information in there that, um, you know, as the investigators had gone through it, they'd done a wonderful job at uncovering all this, but they'd been really focused on, all right, let's get these guys, let's move prosecution forward. Who, need, who do we need to take out immediate sort of threats? The idea was, let's go back through this again and let's see, are there things that we, not that we missed, but that are worth a, a longer look because are they, were they secondary tertiary connections? Maybe it didn't seem like as big of a deal now, but maybe it was more important at the time. Um, and so that's one of the things that um, we looked at pretty closely there. And what kind of conclusions came out of that investigation? So, un unfortunately, um, the you know, viewers, the the case is still um, it's still classified. Um, but what came out of it, I, I would say, is that um, in, in some ways, is, is more questions than answers. Um, there was a there was a, a large amount of activity, um, I think, just writ large, of individuals who had either close or loose associations with the Saudi government that were kind of in this realm, as the, the document that got released kind of talks about. Um, and, you know, at the time, and this is just my personal opinion, let me just be clear about this part of it, um, you know, the Saudi government um, didn't, you know, the right hand didn't necessarily know what the left hand was doing at all times. There's, it's a very large government, and there were some concerns that, um, you know, there could be pieces of this that, that weren't fully, um, you know, understood by them. Um, and so that was sort of what the, the, the effort was kind of looking at that. Um, but it was, um, again, it was super interesting, and, and it, it took me all over the world for a while, um, checking into a lot of things that had happened previously and talking to people and trying to really narrow down and understand sort of the trajectory that the 9-11 hijackers had taken. And it, were there other individuals we could identify that were, you know, and, and even more important than the individuals, were there techniques that they used that could be used again, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the, my, my biggest concern was less sometimes the network that could have been plugged into, but like a methodology that they <laughs> right. used, right? So this is like the A team that got inserted and that, you know, kind of ran circles around or ran straight through rather all of our security apparatus. And um, could that happen again, right, if you had a similar one? Um, and, and certainly there were, there were things that we, we saw in there that needed to be tightened up, and that was a really positive part of it, and say, hey, look, we should really, they did this, someone else could do this again, it's not as, bad, as good as it could be. Um, and so that was, a, I think, a, some good results out of that. Mm -hmm. So in, in your personal opinion, was there a faction or a branch of the Saudi government or Saudi intelligence apparatus that offered some level of support to the 9-11 hijackers? I honestly don't know. And I would say if, if, if I, I think in my personal opinion, if I could give you one, I would. I, I will say that, and, and the reason I don't know is it just, I never came across any definitive information that made it clear that there was. Um, you know, there were individuals that I, you know, we read about, and, you know, one of them, there's, um, you know, there were thought to be potential um, intelligence mm -hmm. officers of, uh, you know, associated with the Saudi government. Um, it was unclear if they were working at the behest of the Saudis or, or their own. Um, and I think part of the issue was trying to, I mean, this is the counterintelligence world, right? Trying to disaggregate, all right, right, right. who's running their own operations for their own organizations and they just happen to be using government resources, right? right. And that, that part was always very difficult to, to disaggregate. And right. I, I, I never saw it. I never saw a clear, you know, command and control, so-and-so who had, who was appointed and did this, you know, told them to do that. That I never saw. Um, how hard is it in, in the modern age, like what you're talking about, sort of the nuance with these nation states and then their governments, people acting in? I mean, in the 1800s, some of the acts committed against us now would be considered an act of war. Yeah. But like you talk about the UN and trying to diplomatically PNG somebody um, where like how do as a federal law enforcement agent, 
how do you deal with those things? Do people come down on you and say, this is how we have to handle this? Do you raise it up the flag and say, hey, this is the situation and we know what the relationship is with this country? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly comes in because and it's a great question because I think the, the Bureau deals with a lot of like specific sort of threats, right, to people or to a particular situation. Um, but often the implication of us arresting someone who's at the, you know, Russian embassy or the Russian consulate or the Russian mission at the UN, for example, or any of those, um, it has huge political implications, right? Um, so you think of like ghost stories, which um, you know, was the, the Russian illegals that were um, you know, running around here and the Bureau had a long investigation on it. Um, in the end, you know, a lot of those guys got traded, right? Mm -hmm. Got sent back. Um, and we got back people that we wanted to get back. Um, and I think, you know, that part of the Bureau on the counterintelligence side understands that that's part of the game, because um, mm -hmm. that part has always been much more sort of closely associated with the intelligence community. Um, it's less well understood probably on the counterterrorism criminal side of the Bureau, because mm -hmm. um, it's just not how things work on that side. You don't trade people um, in that way. Mm -hmm. um, that there's always some tension there. Um, and you certainly get people who kind of come back and forth and like, what, we're doing this? And, you know, I don't care whose agency wants us to do this. It's helpful to whatever part of government. Like, this is a bad guy. So my years, you know, going after him, he should go to jail, he should do whatever, you know, this kind of thing. But um, it, it's a, at least for a while, it's been a very, it was a very different game. Um, that That's changing to, to some degree, especially as you've got, um, you know, places like China and others doing more of sort of on the economic espionage side, um, where we have, we are arresting intelligence officers, right? There was um, a recent mm -hmm. case, a yeah. guy named Xu Yanjun, um, he was a, he's a uh, Ministry of State Security um, uh, intelligence officer, and he was extradited from Belgium, which was pretty amazing, um, and, you know, in, back into the United States. Um, and previously, I mean, that's not something that, that people would want us to do. Um, and pe maybe people are wondering why. The idea is if you, if you just think about the number of intelligence officers that the United States government might have and that they might be um, sort of breaking laws of other countries because they're trying to collect, you know, essential critical piece of intelligence for the United States, um, they don't want to be arrested and, you know, then put into jail. Right. Because right. um, it typically is a, someone gets arrested and they get deported and that's kind of it. Right. Um, but this is potentially sort of it's changed the game a little bit to where, again, we talk about barriers breaking down between foreign and domestic the idea of law enforcement and sort of, you know, you think about like Title 18 and, you know, and, um, and, and you know, an Intel side of things, there's, there's much more of a blending now. Um, and the Bureau is comfortable kind of flipping back and forth. Some other agencies are less comfortable doing that. There's uh -huh. few that kind of, do, that kind of straddle both. So. And were there, were there times either for you personally or for people that you knew that, uh, that when like they were shut down for something that was just very frustrating? Uh, all the time. <laughs> I mean, it, and some of that it may not have been anything nefarious, but it just, it happens, right? They're just, um, you know, we're told, don't don't dig into this farther, let this one go. Um, and you, you don't ever know sometimes. Sometimes it's because some other agency has something going on. Right, right. And you think it's like, you know, hey, I'm, I'm right in the middle of this. I'm, gonna, I'm about to blow it wide open. And it's like, <laughs> no, 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 this is an operation that they set up. They've been running for, you know, six years and you're right. about to screw the whole thing right, up, right? right? And so that happens. The other side happens too, right? Like when you've got, you've been running an operation and all of a sudden someone shows up and you're like, that guy is just a little bit too smart for someone else. And so you go talk to, you know, someone across the river and say, hey, do you guys happen to be running an operation? And then that guy never shows up. They say no, but of course that guy never shows up again. And um, so anyway, that we do some sort of, you know, um, deconfliction that way. And uh, occasionally um, it, it happens a lot more. Um, and I, there's, there's a lot more sort of cross, um, 
you know, jobs that the Bureau works, other parts of the IC and other parts of the IC work, the Bureau, NSA comes in, CIA, we flip back and forth. So there's a lot more um, closer understanding of how we work and like the, the powers that each one of them has. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really, um, basically when the, when the Bureau and the agency and then if you even put the NSA in there, when they work together, it is, they're, it's really an unstoppable team, the amount of sort of resources they can pull to it. Um, and I think we, we do that a lot better than we used to. Um, and, and that's really kind of the, I think, the standard at this point where, you know, traditionally in movies, it's, we're always fighting with each other. That doesn't happen as much anymore. You mean it's not like in the movies where, like, the station chief throws his latte across the room into the window? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that happens occasionally. I mean, and, but that's, but those guys, both on both the agency and the bureau side, get disciplined pretty quickly. Yeah, because yeah. That, that creates some pretty bad blood pretty, pretty fast. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, that... That that was the old way, right? I mean, there was a lot of hatred on both sides, and you know, the, the bureau thinks all agency people are liars, and the agency people think the bureau people are, all, are all knuckle draggers, right? And so that sort of rhetoric back and forth, you know, kind of continues. So the next place you landed was uh, Moscow. Yeah. So what was? Why did the FBI send you to Moscow? <laughs> what was your job there? Uh, I mean, basically, no one else wanted to go. So, <laughs> so no, I mean, I, that's, I'm only partially kidding. So I um, I came in under the rush. Um, the bureau had kind of different designations. So I spoke Russian and um, and then had law, and so that came in under that program. I, so I thought I'd be working Russian CI, um, you know, and so instead I'd get, you know, doing like, um, you know, Arabian Peninsula terrorism, trying to learn Arabic and stuff. So, um, you know, it's typical government sort of puts you into different right. roles and right. no matter what your skill set. Um, but I had kept up the Russian and um, so wanted to go. And uh, again, most of the time people go overseas once they're in the later part of their career because it's kind of a, and it's sort of a reward, right? And you have your long in the tooth and you can talk about these things. Um, I'd only had six years in at this point. Um, but again, people don't want to go to Moscow because it's it's not a relationship that worked, right? So the, the Bureau oversees, it's not like a station chief. We're not running operations. We're, we're liaising and we're cooperating to, to do investigations with them. So if the relationship's crap, it's not, there's not a lot of work to do, right? You go to the UK, you're working closely with the, you know, with MI5, you're working closely with you know Scotland Yard to do all these great operations. People really enjoy that. Um, you know, if you're in Moscow, you're working with the FS FSB and all of those fun guys. Um, for me, that was what I wanted to do because I was like, that's a place you can have an impact. Um, you know, a place that doesn't function um, where you can really kind of move the needle. Because my thinking was, you could be a total jerk in you know in London, and they're still going to work with you because you know they're not going to screw up the relationship. Mm -hmm. But in Moscow, you know, it might matter if you spoke Russian, if you understand them a little bit, if you could talk to them about things or why certain things mattered or why they didn't. And so that's what really kind of drew me to, to being over there. And, you know, despite the horrible things that are happening there now, I'd, you know, I'd been exchanged in there twice. I'd had a host family there. I had, you know, I have great affinity for the culture and for the people. The mm -hmm. government is a totally different story, obviously. Um, and so I thought it'd be fun to go back and then expose my, my kids to it as well. So. so I'm really interested to hear from you as somebody who has, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak, um, interacting and working, liaisoning with Russian intelligence services, um, you know, to go beyond the caricatures in the movies and the spy novels and, and even what we read in newspapers yeah. is often limited in, in second or third hand information. Really interested in like the character and the culture and, and what these guys are like as individuals. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> some stereotypes live up to it. I mean, <laughs> the drinking. Yeah, I mean that that uh, that part is pretty rough. I mean, thankfully I'd had some experience and, and kind of understood how that worked. Um, I mean, there's <laughs> that that's a big part of it, and and there's a I mean, you know, they're they're just they're so 
blatant about this stuff. So I, you know, we had a, they, they had a, um, security and intelligence services like conference in Kazan. Um, it's a city sort of south of, um, or to the east and south of, of Moscow. And, um, you know, it was all these uh, intelligence, uh, all the liaison services that were there in Moscow working with the FSB. Um, and every night at the hotel, there was, the FSB would bring in about 20 prostitutes and just, you know, send them around to talk to people. And so I asked, I was like, you, you know, really, does this, you know, why are you doing this? This is just ridiculous. Like, does anyone fall for this? Or like, we wouldn't do it if people weren't falling for this. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, these sort of tried and true techniques of sacks of cash and sex, and those are, they, they absolutely work. And that's why the Russians continue to do them. And so they live up to that stereotype in terms of, you know, people get into all sorts of trouble and have romantic relationships. And then, you know, they think it's going great. And, and then they, they show up and someone says, you know, the girlfriend says, well, I want you to meet, you know, uncle, uncle Sasha. And you come right. in and uncle Sasha's got pictures of you. And, but don't worry, don't worry. We're all going to make the pictures go away. We just need this. That's right. all we need one thing. And it starts with one thing and then it kind of continues on. And so, I mean, that part is, is, is pretty stereotypical. Um, and it, it tends to work. How but, many times did they pitch you while you were there? So I never got pitched. Um, so if you if you get pitched, it kind of it becomes a big deal. Um, and um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, it usually means that they are because if you're if you're declared, if if they pitch you, um, it, it can generally mean one of two things. Um, one, they want to send you home because they don't like you. Uh -huh. Because once that happens, U.S. government's like, all right, we're not going to let this yeah, potentially yeah. play out. Walk so around, yeah. just get out of here. Yeah. Um, or two, they think that there's some reason you might say yes. Right. right? And so. Um, you know, it, it's not ever a good position unless you purposely are messing with them, um, you know, that they want to, they, they want to do that. Um, so no, I mean, it, it you know, it, I had, I think what was the kind of the constant sort of, you know, trying to, uh, make me see the, their way of thinking about things. Sure. Um, so I, I think as I mentioned to you, I, I was over in Moscow during, um, you know, when the Boston Marathon bombing happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so the Tsarnaya brothers' parents were actually in Dagestan, which is a republic in the south, near where I had been as an exchange student. Um, and so we actually started doing some very close work with them. Um, we were trying to figure out, the, the Tsarnaya brothers had spent a lot of time, or the summer before, in Dagestan, and there was a concern that they had been, you know, radicalized or trained, or maybe there were more people with them. So all these sort of typical um, things that you go through in a, in a terrorism investigation, um, trying to determine what they were doing, and so we're working with the FSB to try to figure this out. Um, and you know, they set us up with an individual who had, um, you know, in many ways had you know sort of dusting off the or you know scraping the blood off his boots because he had just come back um, from you know several tours and down in the Caucasus. Um, and he was a extremely personable guy, and he just spent time talking to me um, about their position and their thinking about things of the world. Um, you know, and look, it's, it's, it's always really fascinating to hear from my perspective because it helps me get into their head, how mm -hmm. they're seeing things. I don't find it particularly persuasive. It was helpful to have been an exchange student there to like know the other side of a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. My, my host family was, I had my, they were Russian culturally, but my host mother was Armenian. The father was Ukrainian. Um, and so they had a very different perspective on sort of Russian imperial sort of, uh, activity. Um, but one of the things he always talked about, and many of them talked about, um, you know, they just, they wanted to emphasize that they're in a rough neighborhood. Um, and it's not like the United States where you've got two oceans and two fairly friendly, you know, neighbors on your, on mm -hmm. your border. Um, you know, and, and this 
guy and this general that I talked to a lot, um, he, you know, he wanted to emphasize that, like, you know, he was like, as much as it seems peaceful now, things can change. This is something they talked to me about a lot because they would argue about NATO and expansion of mm -hmm. NATO and all these things. I was like, you guys are ridiculous. Like, NATO is not trying to take over Russia. It's the last thing we want. You can have your, you know, gas station masquerading as a country. We don't want it. Like, it's all yours. Um, and their response was, yeah, I, we really don't believe that you want it. But, you know, in, in 1932... Nazi Germany was a basket case. It could barely feed its people. By 1936, it was the strongest military in Europe and possibly the world. Things mm -hmm. change, and we have to be ready. So their perspective is NATO might be quiet, you know, at least back then. Let me just what they were painting to me was that it might not be doing anything, but if they ever let it get to a place where it could take mm -hmm. over Russia, then they're in a position where, you know, an untenable position, right, from a national security standpoint. Um, and as, mu as much as crazy as that might seem to us that it would never happen, that's their perspective. Again, right. I'm not trying to defend it, but right. I think it's important to understand that they really do believe this. That's, uh, that's the zeitgeist of the Russian security apparatus, yes. is, is the sort of national trauma from World War II that's, uh, that carries yeah. through. Yep. And rightfully so. I mean, they paid a horrible price, you know, in, in World War II. They, they did, and they did. I mean, and, and query whether, I mean, they paid a horrible price by the, you know, the, the famine that they caused in Ukraine, right? Right, before as well. right, <laughs> right. I'm not, I'm, yeah. I'm no, no, not no, justifying no. them at all. Absolutely not. No, and I, and I, I didn't mean to imply that, but I, I think there, there, there's, it's a mess of, of things, and, and they did pay, you know, a, as a people, a horrible price for it. Um, and, and I think it, it changes their mentality in the sense of, like, what they're, they're dealing with. Um, and again, I, I, I think it's really important, where, you know, I hear on the news and the perspectives and you know, vilifying Putin and, and everyone else, and, and that's fine. I mean, I think, you know, Putin could be vilified, you know, and it's incredibly accurate. But I, I think it's important to understand that at least the, the, you want to call it propaganda, you want to call it the narrative, whatever that the people believe in and what they see there is often very different than what we're hearing. And right. so while there are certain people who, you know, are, you know, they've, they're worldly and cosmopolitan enough to recognize that that is not the, the full story, the vast majority of the people in the country don't. They see it. They see. They have the propaganda every day. They they hear this, and this is this is their perspective on the world. Right. Um, and so, I in, in terms of thinking about where things are going with Russia, I think it's important to know that like it's not just Putin who feels this way. Um, there's a lot of you know, when when you hear the stories from some of these like recently liberated areas of Ukraine and what the Ukrainian civilians are saying, how they interact with the Russian soldiers, and the Russians are like. Why? Why are you upset? Like we're here to save you from the, from the Nazis. Yeah. Like they whole ass believe the propaganda. At least many of them. A absolutely. And and you know for the for the Russians the way they think about Nazis and Nazism is a bit different than the way we define it. And so and, and we have it's kind of a academic sort of piece of it. But but they they really do believe that that's you know in a sense that the U.S. is sort of. Nazifying this place, right? Is that it's, like anything that's an external threat is is quote unquote Nazis? I mean, what is that in their minds? Yeah, I mean, essentially, like the, I mean, the idea of a, like a fascist government from the outside, like that's mm -hmm. Nazism, right? And that's and so I mean, it's gotten a little bit crazy where they even talked about desatanization at this point. Recently, um, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I mean, th there's something to this in terms of World War II was a very different experience for them, and they call it the Great Patriotic War, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, for the U.S., it's like oh, it's just the Second World War we were in, right? And so it just it's a very different experience, and they. Think about it in a very different way. Again, not to say that it's right by any means, but I think that the perspective of the Russian people on this is, is very different. It's always like we're on the precipice of something. Yeah, I mean, they, they think chaos is around the corner. And you were also there when uh, the Edward Snowden affair happened. 
and you had to interact with FSB and some of the other Russian <coughs> agencies about that whole debacle. Uh, what was that like from your perspective? Um, frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was at Sheremetyevo, like one of the main airports in Moscow, for a, a couple of weeks, and I kept asking for permission to go to... Cause I assumed I could probably find him, right? He's in some room somewhere. Um, but... You know, obviously, we were talking to them about, hey, look, this is gonna, this is on the tail end of having great cooperation um, after the Boston Marathon bombing, and this was gonna just tank the whole thing. <coughs> um, but it became clear to me that like, they had no interest in in changing the trajectory of the relationship. Um, they not that they wanted it to necessarily go south, but in their mind, the U.S. has been conducting, you know, these operations around the world with other countries that have, you know, diminished their security. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, obviously Snowden was just a great tool for kind of bringing that out, right? Um, and so they wanted to highlight all the sort of, you know, in their mind, the hypocrisy within the United States government, right? And because, and they want to be able to undermine it because they, they don't want the U.S. essentially causing a color revolution in, in Russia. Right. Um, they saw some of the things that happened in Central Asia. They saw what happened in the Arab Spring. And in their mind, that's chaos. And they they think, they believe that that's what the U.S. is intentionally doing around the world with its democracy spreading, right? They talk about the democracy, the spread of democracy is almost as bad as the U.S. military. And right? Like 1991 is like an era in Russian history like none of them want to go back to. Exactly. Um, no, and, and they, they're very upset about, you know, the lands that were lost. Um, it's funny going back to when I was an exchange student there. I used to talk to school and family, and we're you know it was 1993, and I was like, hey, if you're interested in democracy, I'm happy to tell you about it. And they're like, no, 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 we just want to know how to make money. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're not interested in this democracy nonsense. And so, um, I mean, I don't. I think we sort of misinterpreted, um, you know, with a lot of hope that that the that the fall of the Soviet Union would bring about a democratization in Russia and a change in the way that they deal with things. Um, but it, it really, it, it, if anything, they were just biding their time. They did not have the power to push back on us. Um, but once they did, you know, they started to with, with great abandon. So, <coughs> and so, what what was your interface like at that time with FSB? I mean, what what was it you or us as Americans? What what was our government trying to get from the Russians uh, in regards to Snowden versus what Russians were willing <laughs> to give up? Like, were you guys trying to get him back? Trying yeah. to extradite him? I mean, we were just talking about how bad it was going to be for the relationship too mm-hmm. and you know that that despite sort of all the commentary of like oh he did this on his own and it wasn't an operation where like it looks like anything but um it, it lo- or looks like everything you know it looks like exactly an operation this is how it would go and just talk to them about how it would it would hurt the relationship um and it did um it did it, it ultimately cratered everything and then you know we had soon after that was the um, first invasion of ukraine in 2014 um, and just everything went off the rails after that. Not my fault, totally. <laughs> it was while I was there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it was those... It went from a, a fairly sort of, um, you know, good working relationship with them on particular things, and some things opened up after um, the Boston Marathon bombing, to everything very quickly closing down, um, where they just sort of changed. And I interpreted it a little bit as, you know... We had maybe made some progress with with our counterparts in terms of like, all right, maybe there's a few areas we can, you know, we have some mutually, you know, I'm not saying they were like, oh, well, we should help the Americans. That, that was never part of it. It was like, all right, well, maybe we have our, our interests overlap in a couple of yeah. areas. Um, 
but once sort of the top was kind of like, all right, well, that's, that's nice. Stop playing around. This is the direction we're going to go. And it became very clear it was a very different sort of kind of trajectory after that. I've um, talked to um, CIA people in the past who they, they speak of it um, as, as kind of tragic, um, but also in, in if they feel like, or at least some, some people feel that it's like the Russians are trying to remain relevant in our eyes. Like they're doing things to keep up on our radar, which is a little simplistic. I mean, is, yeah. is, is there some of that or is this really is there's a sort of um, imperialistic ambitions of Russia to secure their near abroad? I mean, how do you, how do you interpret it? No, I mean, uh, yeah. hey, look, it's hard to be in the head of every single Russian. Right? Sure. It's a huge country, you know, 100 and however many, 40 million, 20 million, something, you know, wherever there currently is with the population shrinking. But there is a... Again, a narrative. They have a messianic view of themselves, right? They, I, this gets really deep into sort of the rhetoric. They call themselves the Third Rome. Moscow's the Third Rome. So first Rome being Rome, second Rome being uh, Byzantium and, you know, and Constantinople. And, and basically that it, you know, when there was the schism and then when that place went to crap and was totally corrupt, then you know, Moscow became the true um, center of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a belief system that, that Russia is going to sort of, you know, free, sort of protect the world with their, you know, their vision of how things should work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying everybody has that view, but that is kind of a part and parcel of how Russia kind of sees itself in, in, in the world. Um, so, I mean, I think in, in many ways, you know, the, all the you know, 14 new countries that came out of the Soviet Union, um, some of which had existed before, to be clear, um, the Russians see that as as traditional Russian lands. I mean, obviously, it's kind of, you know, where do you draw the line? If it's 200 years ago, it's Russian. You know, if it's 1,000 years right. ago, it's Mongol. So, I, you know, maybe they want it back. But right. it, it, so it, it's, it gets a little bit confusing. But obviously, that's they, they draw the lines at a certain place and say these are traditional Russian lands and we right. should have them back. Right. Um, and they're an insecure state. Tradition from this state to this state. Right. Right, right. As my Italian friend said, he's like, look, it was all Roman originally. We want it all back. So, right, um, right. <laughs> so maybe... You know. Well, like Lithuania had a huge chunk of it at one point in history. Yeah, I mean, and maybe the Vikings should get it back. I right. don't know. I mean, they were the ones going down the Volga and populating that area to begin with. So, I, you know, I mean, it gets a little bit, you know, kind of silly and to have that sort of academic argument. But I, I don't think... It's, it's kind of irrelevant because whatever it is, they believe that those lands right. are theirs. It's and they, real to them. Right. Yeah, and they need right. it, right? Right. And so I, I think it's an important thing to remember, whether you agree with it or not, think it's crazy. When we are thinking about what we're, you know, we're doing vis-a-vis Ukraine, what is, how is that going to play out with regards to Russia, I think it's important to understand that there is a, a not insignificant part of their population on the other side who is ready to go to the end with this. Right. Um, and what does that mean for how this plays out with us, right? We don't want to escalate... We don't want to lose the war. We're going to keep it in some crazy limbo for 5, 10, 15 years. I mean, I, you know, anyway, I, I'm not really sure how this plays out. Right. Um, because at some point, you know, we're dealing with a, a group of people who in some ways have, have nothing to lose. Right. Right. So that right. makes a, a totally different kind of sense. And, and not just have something to lose, but even though they are a Christian culture, they like my impression is that Russians share sort of a fatalistic worldview in the, in the same way that a lot of Muslim cultures do that. They're certainly very fatalistic. Yeah. I mean, as just, that is a, a quality about how the, and, and, and this kind of gets to the point of, you know, um, your worldviews. I, I basically, you know, I went to Russia as an exchange student and didn't know any Russian. I knew five words. I knew yes, no, maybe toilet, 
shower, I think. That was pretty much it. So learned, basically learned sitting around the kitchen talking to my host mother the whole time. And we would have all sorts of discussions about the world. And, you know, I was 18 and, you know, I'd been to like a border town in Mexico. And right. that, that was the extent of my world travels at that point. And then now in the south of Russia talking about this stuff. Um, but it was really an eye-opening experience, you know, because clearly the things I was expressing, optimism, you know, uh, faith in the ability, the hu you know, human ingenuity to solve problems for life to improve. Basically, very American views, right? This is part of the American experience because this is what we have been able to do, by and large, for a number of different reasons, right? And, but that hasn't been the Russian experience. Um, and, you know, so informed by history uh, and very fatalistic of like, look, you know, things are going to fall apart. There's going to be chaos, and you need a strong government in order to kind of keep the chaos at mm -hmm. bay. Um, and what is the United States doing? They're just churning up more and more chaos mm -hmm. outside. There the is a great uh, Adam Curtis documentary that just came out, uh, Trauma Zone. Oh, okay. It's like eight parts, and it's um, it's old BBC footage. Oh, wow. From uh, like 1975 through the collapse. And I mean, every American should really go and <laughs> watch that because it's just so fascinating. It, yeah. it, it lends this insight into... Everything from like Yeltsin and Gorbachev, but also down to like Babushka yeah. taking the spuds <laughs> out of the out of the basement and traveling to her sister's house, you know, yeah. hitchhiking there and then cooking up the mashed potatoes. I mean, it, it's just like a, a very fascinating insight into into Russian culture and political history. Um, but I would like to um, shift uh, gears, um, a, a, a similar but separate conversation to your time in Beijing. Yeah, uh, what was. Uh, was it they said, hey, you did a knock-up job in, uh, in Russia. We're sending you over to Beijing. Thanks uh, for ruining that relationship. Yeah, Can you thanks go for ruin blowing one that yeah. one, uh, Holden. Um, yeah, so it was, I mean, Beijing is very similar to, to Moscow. Um, it's not a desirable place. You know, it's not a Paris or Moscow, or a Paris or, like, London for FBI agents. Um, and, and I thought, it, I mean, I think because I, I did a good job in Moscow and in and, and terms of, um, and, so I, I applied and, and um, I was lucky enough. So I ran the office in, in, in Beijing for, for three years. Got there at the end of 2014 um, and then left um, the summer of uh, 2017. So a little under, under three years. Um, so sa same sort of question, interacting with the Chinese security state. Yeah. It is something, and, and we were talking earlier about Matthew Brazil and Peter Mattis's yep. very, very good book, yeah, uh, Chinese Communist Espionage. Um, it's a sort of historical accounting but I feel like we just have so few contemporary accounts or views or any sort of lens into the Chinese security apparatus, the Chinese security services. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk to us about that. Sure. I mean, it was um, so our main interlocutor there was the Ministry of Public Security, um, which um, generally is thought of as you know, when people think of like Chinese law enforcement police or whatever. But actually, as that book notes, up until 1983, um, they ran counterintelligence within the country, and they ran a lot of the intelligence operations. Um, in fact, one of the first spies to come over to the United States was run by MPS. Um, and because of the sort of digitization police state that they run, they collect a lot of intelligence. So they work very closely with the Ministry of State Security, who we also met with on a less frequent basis um, just because of the work that we were doing. Um, so my job was to, to work with them and to try to find um, you know areas to cooperate. Um, and it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard because we just, I mean, in so many ways, we just did not see eye to eye. Um, you know, I'd spent a little bit of time in China. Um, you know, I t uh, after, after you take the bar, you take a bar trip. I went to Beijing for four months. 
um, back in 2003, but it had been a long time, but ne not nearly the same level of kind of knowledge and background that I had of, of Russia. And so I had less of a basis to kind of, you know, language as well to build up. And, um, you know, it, it, there's some significant differences. I mean, it, I mean, obviously every people are different, right? But just in sort of trying to contrast the two of them since we are dealing with them and are in the focus. But, you know, in, in, in some ways we're, we, we would disagree with the Russians about, you know, like, the, I don't know how to describe It's almost like the facts of the, or we would, we would have an argument. But in general, we could agree on the facts. We weren't totally off. But at, sometimes I feel like when, we were, when I was talking to the MPS and the Chinese, we, we were just having totally different conversations about things. They approach it in uh, our relationship in a, in a, in a very transactional um, way. Um, and, and I'll give you a really very horrific example of that. Um, so because of the um, poor state of cooperation with both Russia and China, typically, um, it's hard to work um, a lot of cases because they have sort of a political aspect to it. Everything does, right? If it's an impact. Um, so you, you often work matters that are kind of have a visceral sort of you know, reaction. And so one of them we work a lot are um, child sex crimes or child exploitation cases. Um, and we work those with the Russians pretty frequently, you know, give them information about individuals who were um, creating materials, who were on forums and, you know, abusing kids, this type of thing. So really horrific stuff. Um, and, you know, we never had any issues that the Russians, they would respond. Um, sometimes they'd respond a little too hard with them. Right? The RDM running over the house. Yeah. <laughs> so, so occasionally those things would happen. Um, but, uh, you know, it was, they would respond. Um, we had an individual um, that we were dealing with with regards to MPS. He was an American um, at a, um, a school in China. And um, it was one of these, quote, international schools. But the only thing international about it was the, the teachers. The students were all locals. And we had information that he was essentially... The, the horrible thing about some of these forums is that you don't get into them unless you're creating original material. Yeah, right? they call them producers. Yeah. yeah. And that makes that, that creates a huge barrier for the Bureau and others, right? Because obviously you cannot create anything. Um, so there's a whole... There's a process of basically trying to, you know, kind of get into these. I don't with, want the, to, with the Aussies. Yeah. It's come out. <laughs> I want... Well, anyway, <laughs> I don't know what has or has... Um, I'll, I'll let it go, but... Um, <laughs> Because it's obviously it's great and really important work, and um, but we had good reason to believe that this guy was creating material based on the, his mm -hmm. access to students at this school, and so um, we asked for. I said, "Hey, can you deal with this?" I said, "I," I and they're like, "Well, what would you like?" And I was like, "You can deport him. We'll arrest him on site. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can arrest him. There's enough information on here to show you what he's done in China." Um, you know, and put him into one of your dungeons for, you know, whatever amount of time is by your laws. Um, you know, he's, he's violated your laws in your country. That's up to you. Um, I said, but can we just please, like... Deal with it. Can we get this guy out, yeah. of, out of the public? Um, um, so they turned into me and then passed three names to me of um, individuals who were part of their anti-corruption campaign. They said, well, we want these three people. And I said, I'm sorry, you're trying to trade these people? That's exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to trade people that were part of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption fox hunt trade for this individual. And I was like, I, I can't do that. I'm not empowered. This is not my, you know, we, we make decisions based on right. facts and information, and then we follow the cases. This is how it works, which they did not believe. That's how it worked. They saw it as purely transactional. So this went back and forth for probably a year um, before they actually... So they realized. wouldn't arrest wow. this guy who'd broken their laws because... Because you wanted to arrest him and wouldn't make the political trade. 
They exactly. They wanted. So you may be familiar. They've had this um, long-term campaign. They've called Fox Hunt. Skynet is another one, which I know is the Terminator mm-hmm. you know, thing. I'm not yeah. sure why they picked that. So they need a better marketing team. Anyway, um, so, (laughs) but it's basically these individuals who um, uh, had various connections to quote quote unquote corrupt um, politicians in China and had then absconded to the United States, the UK, Australia, and other places, and they were searching for them and trying to get them back, and they wanted us to just deport them and send them back. As it turns out, it's it's much more of a political consolidation campaign because. Surprise, surprise, everyone's corrupt in China, and so just the fact that you are corrupt doesn't mean that, you know, you need to be arrested. It's only if you've also, you know, you're outside of Xi's patronage network. Right. So anyway, they, they were wanting essentially a political move for what was law enforcement. Um, and um, anyway, it, it, it took a long time to move this thing forward, um, but it just gives you an idea of, and, and this is, we talk about this a lot, the, you know, the, the Ministry of Public Security, at the end of the day, they are a security service with a political mission. Right. Um, if you want to think about public security, they are keeping the party secure from the public. Mm-hmm. That's their job. Um, and so they espouse these sort of what they call, you know, kind of traditional Chinese values of, of harmony and other things, but it's, it's just sort of nonsense. Um, they think of this stuff as, as just a way to kind of keep control. Turning a, uh, letting a pedophile loose on a schoolhouse isn't exactly maintaining harmony. No. And that's at the end of the day, this stuff is where they're they're not putting resources towards it. It was going to be potentially embarrassing that because they hadn't picked it up and they hadn't dealt with it, um, and it's just not something that they think of as important. Um, you know, the ideas of like justice and enforcing laws; these are not the priorities for them. Um, ensuring that the public is, you know, kind of placid and following the rules and doing what they're supposed to be doing and not challenging the state—that's what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and so it, it's a that made it very difficult to where there was less and less that we could even do, and it was just this constant dance of ensuring that they weren't pulling information out of us um, to try to use against us or to try to figure out what we were doing vis-a-vis other things, and it became you know a, a much more of a, um, a difficult relationship. Uh, it and, sounded incredibly cynical. It was, and, and this is, I mean, it, it kind of topped off with the, the Shi-Obam agreement in 2015 on you know cyber. This is right after the OPM hack. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously everyone was up in arms about that. And then, you know, they signed an agreement saying they would no longer, um, you know, conduct um, espionage for commercial gain anymore, which was total nonsense. Of course, they never really, they may have slowed down a little bit in a few areas, but they just ramped it up in others and, and went out in a different way. Um, and we sort of were trying to work out that agreement, but it was, it was, it was completely cynical, even just the negotiations with them. And it was clear they had no intention of, of moving forward, of even uh, fulfilling even the basic parts of it. Um, and so in my mind, it just became a matter of, all right, how can I record this, make data for this, so that people in the future can be like, we cannot cooperate with them on this. They have no desire to do it. And so we don't have, so what we had at the time is everyone's like, well, we have to try. We haven't tried before. And it's like, oh, we've tried. It just never went anywhere. Right. And, and so, but there wasn't the type of open documentation that people could look at. So that's what I kind of spent a lot of my time is just, requests and ensuring that it was clearly documented what they did, didn't do, and how they were not fulfilling their end of the agreement, and how it was being used for other purposes. Um, and so, um, and that became helpful when I got to the White House and we started to focus on kind of policy towards China and thinking about shifting it, um, and it was a major U.S. shift. Um, but it, it, it was, it's such a long process to do that. Um, but Were there any areas that you found where you were able to cooperate in a somewhat productful manner uh, on security issues? Um, no. 
<laughs> I was just I was trying to think there were a few who were like, wow, well, this wasn't so bad and I mean the, the problem was and, and this is I, I think we have a tendency to think of, you know, okay, you know, the Russians, the Chinese are ten feet tall, they never make mistakes and that's not the case at all. They they have some very capable parts of their services, um, but they're also a massively corrupt place. Um and so some of the things that we try to work with them, you know, and we try to work with their you know, where we needed inf- them to go get information from their banks. Like they essentially kind of tell us, hey, our banks are a total mess. They don't even like, you know, they can't even like keep compliant. And I'm talking about the big four ones there. And so it was just, they they couldn't even do like basic investigations because they couldn't get information out of their, their banking system to see like sort of financial information. So um, at least not consistently. So, Do you, do, do you feel as though they see us in some ways with law enforcement or not as toothless because we do abide the letter of the law and international law for the most part i actually think they think that that's total bs that we actually don't that's that's that i think the russians and chinese believe this that we can do whatever we want right um and that that stuff is just pure subterfuge you know kind of you know they've seen there. jason Bourne. they know how it works man well i i think it's that but it's all it's also like the idea of like if the u.s is that powerful what country in their right mind would actually restrain their power, right? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Right, I mean, we, we, right, You right. have this, I mean, especially, think, think about after World War II, the U.S. had, I mean, there's crazy estimates where like 60 to 80% of all industrial production was in the U.S. We could have just taken over the entire world if we wanted to, right? Right. And we didn't. We restrained ourselves for a number of reasons, but like, they can't imagine that because that's not how they operate. If they have the power to do something, they're going to use it. Right. And so the idea that the U.S. has this power and doesn't use it because we are principled and we have rules and regulations, it just does not compute. So do, so by their math, though, does that mean that they don't think we're very powerful? Like, it, the, we have the power and we don't use it. So which one of those thing, things aren't so, true? So. We have the power, and we won't use it for them to help them, right? right? Essentially, the things that they want. And if, you know, if we're, and you know, but there's also we have corruption, we have other issues. Sure. And so sometimes that may be influencing why we're not using that power. But I think in their mind, we are using it, right? We, we could blockade China today, right? And keep, we could block out all oil and gas from getting, into, or all oil at least, you know, coming into the coast of China, and they would have major economic consequences today. They know that, right? This is about the focus on Taiwan and other things, the first island chain, get out. But they, I think in their mind, they're like, well, they're not going to do this, and they're, they're a paper tiger, they're weak. Um, even if they have this power, they're not using it. That just means that they're weak in their heart, rather than thinking it's principled or it's, or, you know, again, as we were talking about, a, we, wouldn't, we don't want tyranny in this country, so we limit the power of the government. Did, did you find that, they, uh, that there's a, a belief that they believe all sorts of conspiracy theories about what we're trying to do to them? Uh, like in, in the Middle East, for yeah. example, I've come across many times, like, People think, like, we created ISIS. Like, you're so powerful. If you don't like ISIS, you just send Bruce Willis to wipe them out. Like, what, what doesn't make sense. But Dash, that's CIA. Like, right. What do you, what, what, you know, people actually around the world believe stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, I, I do. I think they, they have a lot of conspiracy. I mean, they, some of the stuff that they see on, online, I think they absolutely believe about the U.S. government. Um, I'm trying to think of anything specific um, could point to, but... No, I mean, I think that a lot of this stuff, they, they, they have a hard time understanding how our system works. Um, and I, I think it's just, it, and, you know, you talk to people who have immigrated here, and it, it, it does take some time to, to get it around your head that, like, no, the police really are limited in what they can do, and they have to follow the rules. And mm-hmm. yes, and that doesn't mean that there aren't mistakes and all sorts of problems. I don't want to ignore other parts of the country that, that need work, right? We're a, 
Right. We're, we're a project, and we're continuing there to work pe- on it, right? There are people that, everywhere that are going to abuse whatever they're a part of. Right. That's just Absolutely. human but, nature. But by and large, the difference between how our law enforcement works here right. versus theirs, it's it's night and day. And so, I mean, I think that there's there's pieces of this that they just they, they cannot figure it out. And so, they, you know, the conspiracy theories come in, and they're happy to believe those if that's how that works or, you know. Who knows all this stuff that kind of comes into it. Um, but I think also part of it is because those types of crazy theories, like they actually, like some of that stuff really does happen there, right? Because it's, it's a, you know, you've got these secret societies and these places that are very closed off. And you, the palace you, coups. And... Exactly. The U.S. can't, you know, keep any secrets. Like everything, everything gets leaked. Like there's no, and this is why I love these conspiracy theories about the U.S. of like, you know, crazy, like, in the center, someone running some secret cabal to, like, run the government. Are you kidding? Someone would leak that to the Times, like, tomorrow. Like, that would immediately be out there. Like, we can't keep secrets for any amount of time. But anyway, I, I think that there's there's a, a fundamental misunderstanding of how we operate. Um, and I think in some ways we, we have a, a pretty big misunderstanding of them. People tend to see them, you know, through their own prism of, like, oh, well, they'd love to be like us if they, you know, if they could mm-hmm. and do these mm-hmm. things. And, and they really don't want to be. Right. Um, if, and in some ways, I'm not sure if our system would work quite as well with that power structure, right? That would mean a lot less power for the CCP. Like, they don't want that. Right. Anyway, I so. heard a, a foreign diplomat. I won't say what country here, but uh, a, a diplomat from the neighborhood, and he uh, he said something like, you know, how would a democracy work in a country of a billion people? Like, how would that – could it even function? I, I don't know if it can or not, but I mean, it's a question. No, I it, it's a I I pose the same one to just thinking about China, like you know, so population of the world's grown and it's, and China's started to level off. So you know, somewhere between a fourth and a fifth of the world's people are mm-hmm. there. Right. Just from a pure like logistics standpoint of like you know of like delivering services, goods, money and stuff, just like, like, don't even think about like the sort of running, but like a logistics standpoint, like could even the best logistics company in the world, I don't know, FedEx, Walmart, somewhere like that, could they make this work? Like a country that size, like actually work right. like from a, that was that, that centralized. Right. Um, and, and that's, I mean, the, the, a lot of very much smarter sort of policy wonks and politicians or, or policy people than me know, looking at this of like, the difficulty of running a country that central, that large, with that diversified now of you know a population, um, you know if everyone's poor, it's a lot easier. But right. if everyone's got different needs and wants because they're all starting to get wealthy. How can they adjust to that that group now? And it's not clear that they can, right? That's, and, and that's that's been sort of a fundamental American sort of point of hubris, hubris, you yeah. know, for for a long time that we always expect that other countries truly want democracy and need democracy. And if we could just give it to them, then they're going to be a okay. Yeah. Um, no, we've, we've, we've tried, I think, unfortunately to influence more heavily the trajectory of, of some countries rather than, you know, look, I, I, and I think that's something that we had, especially with regards to China. If you look back at our policy for a long time, you know, the, we, we were doing, I mean, for taking as an example, we were purposely doing technology transfer to China from the government on all sorts of levels, all sorts of, you know, range of technology to build China up um, for different reasons at different times. One, we wanted to have them oppose the, you know, Soviet Union, but then later because we want them to be bigger, a stakeholder, and, and, you know, all sorts of other reasons. But 
it's not exactly clear that like they want stuff in the same way and they, they think about it in the same way that, that we do they're in a very different place in the world they have a different historical context mm-hmm. um, and so I think one of the big shifts that happened in the last administration and this administration has continued it which is all right we're, we're not in the you know we're gonna plan your future for your business anymore we're gonna lay out some standards we're gonna say this is the minimum you got to get to and if you don't then we're gonna have problems um, and that's kind of where we are now where I think we've laid some of these out and they're they're not meeting them so that we're having some fights well could you expand on that a little bit like where do you think we are in regards to our relationship with China and, and I hate to like ask you to make predictions but like thoughts about where you see it going in the near future yeah so I mean in the in the immediate term if you just think about the massive economic relationship that we have with China I think there's just going to be a huge number of new regulations, controls put on it, right? Or different ways of sort of monitoring or um, kind of regulating it. Everything from, you know, the most recent, I don't know if some people are following this, this is in my business now, the, the semiconductors. Yeah, the export controls, right? We basically like told China, like, hey, we're not selling you chips and we're not giving you stuff to make the chips anymore at a certain level because we don't want you to put them into your. Your military equipment then come attack, and all the it, Americans right? who are working there are like, eh, yeah. like, come home or, or else. So, and, and it's it is a pretty massive decapitation of an entire industry there, and they are scrambling right now to figure out what to do. So, and and China will respond, um, and you know, respond in a number of different ways. And one of which will just ramp up economic espionage, and all right. the spies will be going after all the businesses stuff um, in, in a much greater way. But this is really just the beginning. This is just one industry. I mean, you could take quantum computing. You could talk about hypersonics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, any type of sort of cutting edge technology. And it's going to be hard to think about what is not um, going to be potentially regulated. You know, go back 30, 40 years. You know, what was clear? What was civilian technology versus military? It was there was a much clearer distinction. Certainly, there was some stuff that was dual use. Now. So many things could be used for the military or used for intelligence purposes, right? I mean, you think about, um, you know, just even like geolocation data, right? This is some of the stuff that's coming out about the tic- about TikTok, right? That TikTok was right. pulling geo- geolocation data, data of Americans. And people are like, well, who cares about that? They know I was at the Burger King. I mean, whatever. But if you take that and you aggregate it with other data you have in other places, it right. might be able to help you figure out lots of things that you're doing, right? These just individual pieces of this. But if you think about it, if that data now is thought of as essentially having a national security purpose or at least needs to be protected from a national security perspective, there's almost nothing that wouldn't be in that realm. Right. So if you're thinking about the future, like how, what is our relationship with them going to look like? You know, these, of these areas that got divide, um, sort of designated as like, well, we're going to cooperate in some areas, compete in others and then essentially confront in others. I think this is the sort of either Jake Sullivan or Biden sort of, you know, these kind of different areas. I think the areas we're going to cooperate are going to probably shrink to zero. Yeah. Um, and maybe you'll maybe you'll throw in the environment everything, but even John Kerry's ready to throw a hat in and say, well, this is going nowhere. Um, the areas where we compete are going to expand massively, and then more and more of those are going to, are going to kind of slip over into the confront area. Yeah. I, I don't know what's coming. I mean, you know, but I, I, I think we're in sort of for... Not just with China, but with Russia, and with there's a number of other powers. It's a lot of it's easier and easier for smaller powers to kind of punch above their weight. Mm-hmm. Um, the U.S.'s ability to kind of keep a lid on things that we have for the last 75 so years is diminishing. Our desire to do it is diminishing, and maybe that's even more important. The U.S. doesn't want to exert, you know, blood and treasure out in the world to to do these things anymore. So the ability for other countries to push back is going to expand. 
chaos kind of gets, you know, continues to escalate and that it's going to be a very different, different place. How, how do we get, because for instance, with China, you know, like you mentioned TikTok and, and the data. Well, and we also know that, that China owned a bunch of the DNA testing places that pregnant yeah. women were using, which could potentially be used to create designer viruses, yep, yep. you know, specifically targeting individuals or, or whatever. How do we, you know, we talk about this in a way because we're, we're US, United States and we think about ourselves and it's the U.S. versus China. But there are all these other countries out there that also do not benefit from China, you know, sort of expanding yeah. that. Are they stakeholders? How do we get them to become stakeholders so that it is not a U.S.-China? Yeah, I mean, I think we're working on it, and it's it's going to be slow going. I think you're probably going to have, you know, blocks kind of slowly coalescing on both sides, and then you're going to have a lot of people kind of in between that are trying to trying to straddle both parts of it. Um, and I think you know the EU is sort of getting its head around it. Um, Australia certainly is, and I mean the Five Eyes. There's been a number of um, things. I'm not as um, uh, confident about India, you know, I know where they're part of the, the quad that we've got with that, you know, as, as part of the bulwark to push back on China. Um, I, you know, it, it's not exactly clear, certainly some of their activity vis-a-vis -vis Russia where they're, they're, they're buying a lot of, buying a lot of Ru Russian oil, a lot of Russian military equipment as they've done for years. Um, so, I mean, I think we've got a lot of work to do. Um, and this is where I, you know, I, the big problem from my perspective, I mean, as an American, but also I think that other countries should think about is like, we've also got a little bit of an issue sort of internally. I don't want to I'm not get political, but we certainly we have some hyper partisanship going on. You know, like right now we have a big disagreement about what are things going to look like in the U.S. Mm -hmm. for certain issues, but just even long term, what are we going to have? And so as we're in that sort of, you know, spirited discussion that's so wonderful in our country and, and as we work this stuff out, um, that's a lot of kind of navel gazing, right? And so if the U.S. Yeah. is focused internally and we're not projecting power out, um, that makes the world a very different place, right? So in terms of countries getting in line and doing that, they may think, well, if the U.S. is not paying attention, you know, but China's out here exerting power, I have to deal with what's at home, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if you're Cambodia, the U.S. is far away, right? right. Um, and so I, I think they're still kind of waiting to see how much and what is the U.S. sustain power, and this is why, you know, maybe the Russians and the Chinese are ramping up all their malign influence in order right. to just kind of churn things here in the U.S. get even worse. It, it benefits them for us to be hyper-partisan, for the left and the right to be going at each other so much. Absolutely. I mean, and, and, this is, and they've done this before. Right? The Soviets did this in the, in the 1950s and 1960s. And it, it's, they've had a long-standing kind of operations against the United States to do it. And it, you know, it, and it, it, it essentially sucks all the oxygen out of the room because we're, we're arguing with each other. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and, and to be fair, look, there are some real serious issues that we do need to resolve mm -hmm. it, it's not being helped by the fact we've got crazy you know mis and disinformation floating around that it's being ramped up by outside parties um but i think that you know the u.s looking internally other places haven't quite figured things out like i think it's going to be it, it's hard right now for russia and, and china but it, i think it's probably going to start to get easier for them in the, in the, in the do long you run. do you foresee at any point the u.s sort of you know, just like FISA super, you know, kind of goes outside of our protections for every citizen. Do you foresee any time in the future where our information policy also says, okay, if you're in America, you have privacy laws. If it's an IP that's coming from outside or a hosted IP or a VPN, it doesn't have those same, those same rights. Yeah, I, that's a really good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I think we're in a really, 
you know, cyber has totally obliterated, I mean, as you talked about, the, the walls between foreign and domestic at this point. And there's there's two different models out there, right? The idea of cyber sovereignty, like what, what China and Russia call, and, you know, it's basically like you localize your data, you have control of it, you get to, you know, you have firewalls around it, so you only, you know, you only see things that you want your citizens to see. And the U.S. that's created this very kind of open system where everything can kind of flow. I, you know, and I think from a philosophical standpoint, you know, we like the idea of openness, but but we have to acknowledge there are some real problems with it mm -hmm. um, in some way. And this is just going back to my time overseas. One, and this is a very legitimate complaint um, that both the Russians and the, and the Chinese had against the United States was access to information. So think about this. If you've got, you know, two Russian citizens um, using Facebook to communicate, you know, using the Facebook Messenger, and they're communicating about wanting to blow up a bus in, in Russia, how do they get that information? They don't have, you know, there's no Facebook representative there that they're going to go and sort of process to. It's an American company. Yeah. So there, there is a process in place, and, and again, it's not to pick on Facebook, but, um, you know, and, and they have a, they've tried to deal with this. But at the end, they're at the, you know, the, the whim or the desire of that private company. They mm -hmm. cannot enforce that. Where the U.S. can go and tell Facebook, you, could, you have to give this information today, yeah. right, this type of thing. That's a real issue, right? So, but if data it can free flow and go everywhere, and people can have access to this stuff, um, that creates problems for governments to get access to information they need to protect their citizens. Mm -hmm. Flip side of that, of course, is they're also looking for all the dissidents who are talking Correct. about things. And so, how do you, if you're Facebook, how do you figure out like, is this a real, legit sort of like they want to blow up a bus, right? Or are these two guys who are being oppressed by the Russian government, and so they want, you know, they they want information on them. Um, but you're putting a private company in, in the in the seat of an of like a judge, like right. maybe an arbitrator of making these decisions, and that's incredibly difficult. So I just bring that up to, to your question of like, I th I think we've got a really hard road to hoe here because I, I don't know what the right answer is. Right. Um, but our current like our current setup that we're pushing from the U.S. is is not without problems, not without real legitimate issues, and certainly their side of it is not something we want either. Um, so what does that mean? I think we've got a lot of things to work through over time. But if we can't even get people to agree and sit down and talk at these meetings and we're using them for, like, geopolitical head smashing, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. Um, Your uh, next stop was uh, the White House. You had an interesting title, uh, National Security Council Counterintelligence uh, counter Director. What was your job there? What, what, did, that, what did that entail? Yeah, so, uh, so there's... So National Security Council, there's a bunch of directorates, and then everyone is a director for something, right? So a director for, you know, Middle East, or sometimes you have a director for, like, Syria. When it was Syria, it was big. You had this. So I was a director for counterintelligence. Um, and so my job was really to help coordinate policy and changes and anything that were happening at the, at the national level between all the different agencies um, with regards to counterintelligence. Um, and the way, you know, we talked about this a little bit, how... The Bureau thinks about counterintelligence as a little bit different um, than some other agencies. So, you know, in a very traditional, strict sense, counterintelligence is you are countering the activities of an intelligence agency, right? Um, but, you know, there was a recent report from the um, CICI, the Senate Select Committee, was talking about some of the changes that have happened and that it's almost come from at least the FBI and some of the ways that other, there's not agreement on this, to be clear. But the way we deal with it sometimes is any actions by the government um, kind of becomes almost, you know, that's going to be countered by the U.S., sometimes gets thrown under the umbrella of counterintelligence. And so I mention that because 
I dealt with intelligence issues. I dealt with malign influence. I dealt with all sorts of other just influence issues that had nothing to do with intelligence services. Um, but it was government agencies from other places, private sector, some things. All these things that got kind of thrown under the, the umbrella, the rubric of counterintelligence. But it was essentially almost like any outside group that was trying to do u harm to the U.S., I'd get pulled into meetings and they'd be like, all right, what is the, what's the Bureau think about this? Or what's the counterintelligence perspective? Or how, how do we protect ourselves from this? Um, and so anyway, it was, uh, I did a lot of China work at that time as we were trying to move the U.S. from uh, really when we talked about these levels of from a cooperative stance where we were really trying to help China kind of continue to build up. And there were still, in 2017 when I got there, still a number of agencies that saw their job as cooperating with China, as providing information, <laughs> helping them build things, helping them. And, you know, and, and to be fair to them, they, they this had been the... the um, they don't know. see it as anything nefarious. No, it's, no. Yeah. And, and, and they, we were told to do this, right? I mean, this is what the agencies are supposed to do, um, you know, 10 years before. And, you know, and it, things just changed so quickly with, with China. I think they couldn't even imagine that, like, we actually had to worry about China, right? This place is, you know, poor, developing, but it's not going to be, it's not a competitor by any means. And then all of a sudden, all, you know, certainly after the financial crisis in 2008, like power dynamics started to change pretty dramatically. Um, so it was a lot of helping them understand, like, you can't be cooperating with them anymore. You can't be giving them misinformation. You can't be dealing with them, you know, having our scientists go over there and teach them to do these types of things. <laughs> and so, um, but then it also got to, as I talked about other organizations, it's like, trying to work with academic institutions, universities, and help them understand, like, look, you know, if you're receiving government money, um, you might have to think twice about who has access to your labs. Right. You have these cut this cutting-edge, um, you know, equipment, and, and you're doing this cutting-edge experimentation, at least in part because of U.S. government support. Um, that doesn't mean that anyone can run into your lab then and use that same, you know, equipment to do things that we don't want them to do. Um, right. But ran into a lot of cultural problems there, right? That's a... That, University system doesn't want controls on, uh, you know, on information and knowledge. <laughs> it, and it's tough to, in today's climate, I imagine, we've talked about this before, that anti-Chinese government action, anti-CCP action, can, will get branded by, as racist in a heartbeat, and then it'll inhibit, it'll inhibit your, your ability to stop them. Yeah. I, so this is something that, that, that Chinese intelligence pushes, um, absolutely. So one thing that they, they know that that sort of a, is a third rail and a lot of times in American politics is if you're talking about sort of racial discrimination and that can make everything grind to a halt. So they've seen that as something to grab onto and to focus on. Um, at the same time, I, I think it's important to note that there are people who have focused on that people who are like, well, if you have this background, right. people have been attacked and say, well, oh, well, they're Chinese. They're, you know, maybe three generations ago, their you know their ancestors came from China, but right. they're Americans, right. right? Or or they came and they're naturalized, and they're Americans now. Um, so I mean, there's a, there's a piece of this, and so one way that I always talked about is is to, to rather than think of the people with these connections, um, you know, based on ethnicity, but think about it in terms of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Your ethnicity or your national origin really doesn't matter if, what your 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 what they are. Um, it, it matters if you have um, financial connections or family connections. Mm -hmm. So, so I have no um, Chinese background whatsoever. Um, if my sister worked for a multinational in Shanghai, I would be vulnerable mm -hmm. because because of her being there, the security services, intelligence services could lean on her in a way, right? And so, it's important to think about this stuff as as a vulnerability, right? That 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 connection can be a wonderful thing for you know in terms of 
cultural aspect and even helping in, in all sorts of ways, but it also can make people more vulnerable. It doesn't necessarily make them a threat. And so I think part of the issue is that sometimes people jump to, well, if you're associated with that, you're a threat. Right. Rather than saying, no, you're vulnerable and you could be abused. Because sometimes it's unwitting, sometimes right. it's witting. But um, So that's an important, I think, distinction to make. Um, but it, in, in some ways, uh, you know, the CCP has got us chasing our tail because they'll focus on saying, well, you know, oh, it's purely a, a racist sort of like attack on us, you know, because you're attacking us. As, and so there's... way likes to play that game. Yeah, absolutely. And so, the, you know, the U.S. government's made a real um, strong attempt to focus on one saying PRC, People's Republic of China, right? And talking about that and using that as an, you know, rather than saying something is Chinese, because that can obviously not just be the country, it could be the ethnicity, right? Um, and then it's also focused on talking about the party as the problem um, rather than the people. And I, think, and I think that's a really good, important distinction, right? right? Because they're the vanguard, they're in charge. Um, most of the people don't even know what's going on, much less have any ability to make any decision. So whether they've been propagandized and are supporting them, that's important to note. But like at the end of the day, it's the party that we really have a problem with and not the people. So. Mm -hmm. What was it like being up there at the White House at a high level and kind of, I know there's probably a lot of things you can't talk about, but I mean, you must have been, you know, at least aware of some pretty like gnarly counterintelligence investigations and some things that, I mean, probably kept you up at night. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, it, it it's a, a crazy experience because as you imagine, I mean, there's sort of, you know, the, the top secret, then there's SCI compartments, and then you have all these crazy programs where mm -hmm. it's like, 25 or 30 people in the country are read into them or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so the benefit of that job is I get got read into pretty much all of them. And so you see the wonderful thing about it um, that actually helped me sleep at night is you do see all the stuff that the U.S. government is doing and, like, some of the things that we have going on. And you're like, wow, that's really cool. Like, this stuff is pretty amazing. We've been working at this for a long time, and we've, we're doing a really, really good job. Um, and then sometimes we're doing such a good job we get access to information that is so concerning that, that it does keep you up. <laughs> yeah. It kind of goes back and forth. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there were some things just, I mean, without going into detail, but like, I mean, in some ways this informs my ideas of what is kind of coming. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think Americans tend to want to believe the, the best and, and be optimistic. Um, and I think that can sometimes make us a little bit naive about what might be happening. And, you know, there's an, uh, a lot of much smarter commentators than me out there talking about, you know, this last period since World War II of relative quiet, certainly since 1991, uh, you know, with, um, you know, global war on terrorism is a glaring exception. Um, but it's been relatively quiet that it's probably an anomaly um, mm -hmm. and that we're probably going back to a much more competitive and, and conflict-ridden world. Um, and so that was a lot of seeing sort of what appear to be indicators of, of that are kind of coming in from all different parts of the world, from different parts. Of, you know, the U.S. government has, you know, obviously bases and, and stations and everything all around the world, the information kind of coming in about what is happening. And it's the one thing that just struck me was just the turmoil and chaos, right? Um, Freedom House, you know, does a survey each year. Um, and I think last year, it was for the 16th year in a row, freedom has declined around the world. So for 16 years straight. And their prediction is that it's going to continue to go in that direction. And so just some of the things you see in there is that like we're, we're, we're getting up to a time where it's going to be very different than what we faced before. Um, Do you see a, uh, a increase in um, 
foreign intelligence capability or, or say foreign intelligence targeting us but I'm, I'm interested in the volume but also the capabilities are they are they um sort of like that you know vertical versus horizontal proliferation yeah. like are they increasing their capability coming coming up not probably able to match us but getting closer yeah i mean i think if I recall the most recent reports have come out, so it doesn't mean they're exactly quite, you know, exact, but they're in our category. Right. Um, and, you know, and that's, that, that covers a lot. I mean, you know, MSS has 100,000, you know, people in their organization. So, you know, there's some who are really good and there are some who are like, you know, not. <laughs> right, right. So, it, and that's why I think it's kind of confusing because you'll, you'll see these operations. You're like some kid going onto a Navy base, taking pictures. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Stuff like that. Or even to the most recent one that um, came out, DOJ was charging those guys from Huawei. And like, you know, the kind of the source control operations, you could see the dialogue. I mean, at least from my standpoint, it was pretty, um, you know, he's revealing a lot of things he shouldn't have revealed. You know, he's basically talking about what his boss wanted or didn't want and, you know, and, and all sorts of information you wouldn't want to tell a source if you want to kind of keep them strictly controlled and focused right. on things and stuff. So I don't know who it was exactly who was running it, but it didn't seem... Um, that's great. But, but back to your point, I mean, so yes, I mean, I think that the number of agencies out there that are doing it, not just in Russia, China, but other places in the world, um, it's cheaper and cheaper to do this now. Um, you've got a lot of private sector people getting into it. There's been some great articles recently about, um, you know, Indian hackers for hire, um, and you could do that. There's a number of countries in the Middle East that um, tend to outsource a lot of their intelligence mm -hmm. gathering. They pull mm -hmm. in private organizations to do it because um, they're their intelligence services are more inwardly focused. Um, and, you know, in, in some ways, the sort of um, the collapse of, of distance and ability to reach out and touch anyone has made your ability to run operations against anyone just, you know, increase by a million fold. I mean, think about LinkedIn. LinkedIn is like the ultimate, like, recruitment tool in many ways, right? I mean, you, you, can, you, you can set up the search parameters on that to find people in a company with certain backgrounds, you know, uh, you know with you know, went to a certain school, you can figure out everything about them, all the things you would need to create a targeting package to go up and, and, and bump them and start a relationship with them. Um, it's an amazing tool for, for being able to do all that. Um, and so uh, that type of stuff is, is really concerning in my mind because it makes it so much easier to run, you know, not just, you know, cyber operations, but a human operation mm -hmm. where people can come in and start to run this. And it, it often doesn't take much to get people to want to, uh, you know, persuade them to collect information. There's uh, one more question I wanted to get to before we talk about sort of your private sector experience. A uh, question I wanted to ask you about uh, potentials for abuse, things that are like, uh, you know, the public has some concerns about. My friend uh, Ken Klippenstein published an article this week about uh, the Department of Homeland Security, and they had, at, um, for a short time, a council on disinformation that was disbanded. And yeah. uh, he writes in the article about it's a, it's a public-private partnership where the yep. government will go to a Facebook and say, hey, we have some concerns about this maybe being disinformation. Can you, um, you know, throttle that down yep. or can you take that off your website? And now the government, it, it's, it's not the government ordering the company what to do, but nonetheless, there are concerns about censorship, who gets to define what disinformation is. And I was just wondering, since you worked at like kind of all levels of this topic, what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a huge mess in my mind. <laughs> I, I don't know what to do. I mean, you know, you've got Elon Musk just bought Twitter, and, you know, whether you think that's the, the best thing ever or the worst thing ever, uh, you know, you basically have 
private companies are now in the business of arbitrating speech, mm-hmm. right? Deciding what is acceptable, what isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, so this is ripe for the Supreme Court to step in to say you can't do this or can do this, or you're now sort of a, you know, um, you're going to be considered a um, utility. Or, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, essentially, in the, and you know, people, everyone uses you, and so you're going to ha- you're going to be considered essentially you're going to have to you know protect these types of rights as well. Because right now, I mean, like First Amendment is protects you against government action, right, right? and right. not necessarily against private action. Um, so I, I think you know. You've got the situation where the government is sort of in a, in a really U.S. government specifically is in a, in a tough spot, um, and, and we we talked about this when I was up there. Um, there's another place um, in the State Department called the Global Engagement Center. Um, the GEC. Yeah, um, and run, so, run by a Navy SEAL and then a fighter pilot, and then I, I don't know. They're not quite as bad today, are they? No, no. I, I actually, I mean, you know, they originally started doing kind of work on trying to put out, um, you know. Uh, non-extremist uh, inf- uh, information about Islam, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I mean, you know, an important piece. I, just to go back to earlier story about the, about the Tsarnaev brothers, you know, the, um, his mom talked about, you know, when Tom Erlane was, you know, they were Muslim but not religious. And when mm-hmm. he decided he wanted to find out about it, what did he do? He went on, went on the Internet. And if you, you know, back then if you Googled Islam, you, you did not find the peaceful part of the religion that made up the majority of the people. You found the extreme stuff. And so right. that's what he encountered right away. And so the GEC was, you know, created to try to make sure that there's, you're, you're getting a much, uh, you know, richer kind of mm-hmm. uh, you know, picture of, of how things go. Um, and so I think similarly, you know, they've been expanding kind of focus on, um, you know, uh, so some of the disinformation is put out by Russia, China, and other places. But they're a tiny organization, and there's a big question of, like, should the U.S. government even be involved in this, right? Like, no, I mean, what American believes information that comes from the U.S. government, right? I mean, there's just, there's, a, there's an automatic sort of, like, right, that's total nonsense, right? That's a politician well, saying that. Well, it depends on if it's, if it's your president or not, right? Like, if you're for Trump, then you believe what comes out. If yeah. you're for Biden, you believe what comes out. Obama, Bush, Clinton, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah. we identify with that. Um, but what government has ever been completely honest with its people? Right. No, I mean, that's, I mean, you, you see those stats, right? The common, like, what government institutions are always the lowest sort of level of trust and right. stuff, which, um, but no, I, I think it's a really tough spot. How does the U.S. encourage this environment? You know, and I mean, it basically, the information environment in the cyber world is, is nascent and it has not fully developed. Yeah. Um, but like like all industries that are new, the trash moves in first, right? So right. this is like you know what were the first? Um, I'm gonna date myself here, but you know back when videotapes became the thing, like what drove VHS <laughs> tapes? Porn, right? right. I mean, porn, what drove porn? the internet to begin with? Right. Porn, right? Porn so, made the VHS industry. Right. I mean, it did. Yeah. So all of these. I mean, you think about we this. We got sort of, all these cameras and mics in here. We're in the wrong business. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Getting uncomfortable now. Um, so anyway, but uh, I mean, here, have a drink. Yeah. Wait. <laughs> this, is this is for the second half of the show. Here. All right, we're going to delete that part. Right here. <laughs> so, um, but no, I, I mean, I think there's a, a a piece of this where it's like this is the the we're the very early stages of this information environment, and you know, it's the garbage that's in here right now, and we can't like kind of make sense of it. And so over time, it's going to you know get better. Um, and I, I think that the private sector should be the, the main piece of it, but like, and there could be so much damage that could happen before that, before that comes about. Yeah. Um, but you've got, yeah, I mean, this is like, again, get back to like, so Elon Musk now is, is going to make more decisions about how, what speech is okay in, 
you know, on Twitter, and that's a huge forum for information now. A guy who has significant business interests in China. I mean, right. is, is this, you know, a guy who was spouting essentially Chinese views on, on Twitter? Taiwan. And, and, and also, um, there's, you know, at least Ian Brimmer says he talked to Putin or received talking points from Putin. He denies it. Who knows? But he put out talking points that the Ukrainians were not particularly happy with. Um, so, uh, again, not to pick on, on Elon Musk, but the idea being, should you have any private citizen making these types of judgments, right, about what is in the, 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 the public sphere? Well, they, I mean, and, and I agree with you. And prior to that, whether it was an individual or a board, yeah. you know, they were banning people yeah. for questioning whatever, whatever it might be. Right, they were they banned the New York Post for the Hunter Biden story. Right, right, right for the laptop. So it, it, it's not just one individual; it's private Absolutely. citizens, right? Yeah. And and you know, private citizens have agendas, regardless of what those agendas are. And these organizations, these they like you said, they they have become in a way utilities. Yeah, that people can in a way get depersoned like lose their livelihood or their career if they are not on these or they get banned and yeah it's it's a question of how how do you ensure that whether it's an elon musk or a jack dorsey in the board or or who zuckerberg or whomever else that you know how do they combat misinformation but also not just because the fbi says hey facebook the stuff on yeah. Biden's laptop is got you know Russian disinformation that they don't bury it. No, and that's a fair. And it, it, I don't mean to imply that it was better previously with the board necessarily, right? It, it maybe it was better in some ways and worse in others, or it was worse. I, mean, who, I don't even know how to judge it. But the point, as you made, is you've got private citizens doing their best. Facebook set up a similar kind of you know what group of experts to kind of arbitrate this stuff, right? Um, which I imagine is a bit of you know sort of. Um, you know, First Amendment theater that they've kind of put in there to like allow these things to go forward. But, um, I, you know, I, I, I think we've got a big fight on our hands coming up like with this. Yeah, like, and it, it's tough because, you know, when, when we, like right now when we look at the COVID vaccines or whatever and we look at the data coming out, like one, you don't want to discourage people, but you want to have the scientific de- debate. Like what if, you know, what if this were the smallpox vaccine yep. and there were people like saying, no, don't do it. Uh, you know where where it was necessary, or or what if it was uh, electroshock therapy or lobotomies? Like it, it's it's difficult to determine when something is actual debate, when it is targeted misinformation. Yeah. No, I, I I don't have it. I don't know if there's a good solution for it. I'm not I'm not sure if the days of Walter Cronkite delivering the news for everybody were necessarily better in every ways, right? <laughs> right. I mean, th- certainly some things were better than others, but like you know. Why did he have such a, you know, a, a kind of a, you know, an ability to, to make those decisions? Right, right, right. What was the news? You know, what yeah. people decided was the news. Yeah. I mean, I, I, again, this is one of those things that you think about could easily consume, you know, American society, to, you know, thinking about this and trying to figure it out. Um, and, and it's rough. I, I, I will say without sound too, you know, rah, rah, patriotic, I, I, as much as, as rough as it is, I think it's the right way to do it, right? right. I don't want a... You know, take China as an example, having, you know, a bunch of technocrats who have my best interests at heart, you know, who are making decisions about, you know, I need a firewall to protect me so I don't I, you know, have right. ideas bothering me. I, I don't want that. Um, the flip side of that, though, I think I hope most Americans 
come to understand is that that means that we have these debates that can get kind of ugly, and right. we, we sh- which we should try to make them as less ugly as possible, less personalized, right? right. But th- this is our, our methodology for, for trying to find some sort of middle ground compromise, and it takes time. Um, but if the, the less we try to kill each other during that, the better, right? Do you, uh, having been in China and understanding their system, and, and maybe social credit wasn't kind of a thing then? I don't know. Sort of, yeah. But, but do you see a potential for the United States? Do you see any traces of the United States? Or do you think that we can slip by that and avoid it completely? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's a really good question. I, I think we're going to have to be really careful that we do not fall into um, or get you know kind of lured in by the, the siren song of, of surveillance technology. Um, I think a lot of people see that as this sort of wonderful panacea that's going to solve our real problems, right? Um, just in my current job, we talked to a lot of businesses um, and we talked to them about how to protect their employees and protect themselves from losing information. And their response a lot of times can be, well, we've got this wonderful tool that allows us to see everything that they're doing. Um, I'm not sure the employees know that they have that tool. Um, but I think we, we need to be very careful um, uh, believing that technology is going to solve all this, right? Their ability to like watch all this stuff. And so social credit, I think, is just a, a kind of even larger system, right, of where you're essentially surveilling their, their bankruptcy, their, you know, their marital status, and their, you know, maybe their, their, their Tinder feed as well as their Twitter feed, right, to see what, the, their, what they're doing and then coming up with an, a, some wonderful al- algorithmic, you know, kind of results that no one can kind of peer inside it to figure out how is it's it actually patriotic? done. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, is it the right? Yeah, I mean, that, is it the right talking points? Yeah, I, that, I mean, that, that, I think this is going to be really difficult. And I mean, this is maybe the challenge of AI. I mean, of you know how do you know, which we don't necessarily have. We just have machine learning at this point. But at some point, we may have something much closer to AI. And how do we use it without sort of destroying ourselves? Right. right. To go back to Elon, who's he's he's very worried about it. And then even to, to connect to Putin, who said the person who controls you know, the country that controls AI will control the world. Right. Um, and we've seen some well, some bad experience with AI where, you know, they did the Twitter AI, I think, and after getting uh, sort of stampeded or brigaded, that it did nothing but curse. and Oh, it was like super racist? Right, say? yeah. <laughs> that was horrible. Right, right. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, we're still trying to learn how to figure that out, but I, I think there's this piece of, like, you know, assuming that technology is going to solve all of our issues, rather, you know, and that we just create the right formula, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's what inf- you know, what is that? How is that waiting going on? And then what is the information that's going in there? Someone is having to decide that, right? right. And so you put good information, you know, the whole idea of garbage in, you're going to get garbage out, right? right? So uh, I, I'm, I think there's a little bit of, you know, we we get, I think particularly Americans get kind of. Um, enamored with technology and to think that's yeah. going to solve our problems. Right. Big time. Um, and I think there's parts that it can make our lives better. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've young kids, I've mentioned, and so I, my wife and I are constantly reading about, you know, all the sort of problems that are caused by social media to kids. And you think about all the sort of negative effects of it, and I'm like, and so what are we getting out of this at the end of the day? Right. But almost every dystopian story we have that's been popular from like Fahrenheit 451 and 1984 on, onward to, you know, Brazil and yeah. Terminator and everything else that has something to do with technology, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, could you talk to us then about, you know, sort of uh, going into the private sector and what you're up to today? Yeah. Um, thanks. So um, 
so I saw a need, and I mean, what the being at the NSC and at the bureau, you know, we're really focused on the playing field and how, like, how to protect that. Um, but we realized that there's a lot of companies and individuals that just weren't getting the sort of um, kind of preparation that they needed. Um, you know, we I've in the bureau, you're kind of always kept at arm's length um, with regards to companies and what they've got going on, and so. You know, uh, being out in the private sector now, it's a lot easier to kind of bring you into the fold. Um, so basically, we have a, a, a um, boutique consulting that helps companies deal with um, nation-state threats, right? So these are human-driven kind of threats, and we, we have human-driven solutions. Um, so we don't focus so much on the cyber um, piece of it um, we, in terms of the technical piece of it. I think there's a lot out there um, dealing with that, for better or for worse. Um, we focus really on kind of how the people interact with technology, the facilities, and even interact with each other. Um, you know, if you look at statistically on, you know, um, cyber intrusions still upwards 90% plus are because of, you know, poor control of credentials, you know, no multi-factor authentication, yep. clicking on links, downloading things yep. they shouldn't have. So ultimately, it's still the vast majority relates back to people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the, the best piece of software is not going to protect you from that. You have to, like, focus on... People. And so for us, it's about having, you know, creating that awareness of like, you are an important part to this. And whether or not you appreciate it or not, your company has been pulled into a massive geopolitical struggle. And the quicker you get your head around that and realize that there are, there really are, you know, intelligence officers in China, in Russia, in Iran, you know, in all sorts of other countries in the world trying to steal your information, the better yeah. you'll be able to protect your company, your family, your livelihood, and that type of thing. Um, so we, Try to help give you know give advice and think about this you know depending on what kind of company you are if you make semiconductors or you know if you're making you know if you've got data or things what are the types of assets that um, essentially uh, intelligence officers and others are coming after how they're going to come after you and then how can you protect yourself in the private sector yeah um, it's a little bit difficult or different in, in some ways because. You don't have the same tools of protection you do in the government, right? You, you don't have the same tools to find this stuff out. Um, so it's a lot more sort of risk analysis versus investigations and stuff. So it's been a, it's been an adjustment, but it's, it's fun. It's a, you can be a lot more creative, I think, than you can in the government, which is often, you know, kind of your blinders on. Um, and we've gotten to touch a lot of different companies that didn't, didn't get to kind of get as close to before. That's fantastic. Where, where can people find these services? Where can they find you if they're interested in? So we're on the internet. Uh, Trenchcoat Advisors is the company, um, and uh, you know we happy to always talk with if companies are interested and work with individuals sometimes if they're kind of concerned about themselves, um, you know, in, in, in terms of their own security. Um, so my partner is Bill Priestup. He was um, the head of uh, counterintelligence for three years. We have a few more people have joined us now and starting to to work with more. Um, but really, it's about for us. It's more kind of strategic. Like, how do you how do you navigate this, right? Um, especially if you, if you are one of those semiconductor companies that used to sell to uh, China. What what do you do at this point, right? What should you be prepared for? Um, which is you know ramped up economic espionage on your company, that type of thing. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're doing because it, it kind of rang a bell for me because I remember somebody I think it was at Special Operations Command saying at Sofic one year like, we need a computer program that can identify disinformation. <laughs> It's like, hold on a second, buddy. Like, if if that program ain't up here, it right. doesn't matter what the soft, software is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, there's and that's a big piece of it, right? I mean, it's there's a lot of software out there that supposedly gives all these great solutions, but at the end of the day, you know, it, the well, people are vulnerable. And, and, yeah. and you're right. I mean, for 
like you said, like 80, 90 percent of, of cyber cyber crime, not even the intelligence aspect, but just the crime, which is a multi-billion dollar. It costs businesses billions of dollars yeah. every year just in the United States. Um, it, it's phishing. It's it's those human oriented attacks. Yeah. Do we have uh, any questions from uh, folks out we there? We do. In, in we the have world? we have some questions. Well, right. We got some spicy questions. I don't know. Some if we spicy. Have I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I was just saying that. Uh, let me see what we got going on here. Um, pop over to the studio. And all right. <clears throat> Danny, thank you very much. Uh, oh, this is a great question. Uh, was Holden's father a big J.D. Salinger fan? Oh, <laughs> no, you know, I wish my parents were that uh, literary or literate. <laughs> um, Holden's actually um, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother's maiden name. And so it's a family name. So there's a bunch of my dad's from uh, Mountain View, Missouri, where there's interestingly no mountain and no view. Um, but uh, and there's a bunch of Holdens and, and triplets around there for some reason they, when they immigrate over there. So, so no Holden Caulfield. Nope. No, Caulfield. Um, Jerry, thank you very much. What is your opinion of the ports of New York and New Jersey? Do you think they are deliberately open to immigrants from China? Uh, I, I don't have not heard that. I can't imagine they'd be deliberately open to them. Um, but I would. There's you know, human sort of uh, trafficking is a massive issue um, just around the country, around the world, um, and. China has some huge issues with that. So it's funny, actually, I, that is one issue that we were able to work with them on was human trafficking um, to some degree when we were in China um, at times. And then there was, anyway, became frustrating, but that was one that they had some um, time for us on, and it was a, a serious issue. There are some really powerful um, criminal operations. I mean, obviously, I haven't heard of the triads, but there's a, a number out throughout China um, that kind of bring people in. So I don't know if it's purposeful, but, I mean, you know that sometimes it's just the corruption is so endemic and rife, and it's it's pretty easy for a uh, yeah. criminal organization to exploit do you th- it. Do you think? Do you feel as though politicians um, are becoming more security aware when it comes to immigration issue? Not not just immigration, but like who they allow on their staff, who they're partnering with, who they're taking donations from, things like that. At the federal level, for sure. Um, at the state level and the local level, I don't think so. Um, I think that there's still, it's, there's been a couple um, articles that have come out. Axios did one uh, probably about a year ago, and there was another one recently. Um, they're still, you know, they're still at a point where it's like, you know, X Chinese city calls up and says, "Hey, we want to set up a friendship with your town in, you know, in Idaho." And they're they like, put Great. out a, they and, put out a warning like three months ago, warning like small businesses, like you need to be aware yep. of. And and I think they're starting to get their heads around it, but there's still there's a huge um, kind of gulf of understanding at this point. Um, so I, I don't think people take it as seriously. Um, and again, I, you know, I think kind of your to your point earlier, there's a little bit of people are like, well, I, I can't do this because then it, it you know I'll be con- you know considered discriminating or racist. And I, again, I, 
from my perspective is this is not approaches that that person is a threat. It's like understanding that people have vulnerabilities based on where they may have family. Right. Their, their particular, you know, ethnic, you know, national background is irrelevant, actually. Right. right? Just think and approach it that way. And so, you know, if this person happens to be of whatever ethnicity but has no connection to China whatsoever and they don't have any family over there, then they're probably just as safe as anyone else is. That right. Way, you know. Right. Uh, Ohms, thank you very much for the donation. Uh, this is more a comment, I guess. Um, I know the Bush administration offered ports to UAE and Saudi Arabia. Not sure about Saudi Arabia, but yeah, that's a thing. Uh, thank you, Ohms. Uh, Danny, thanks again. Uh, was Agent Triplett involved in the investigation raid on Mar-a-Lago? Is he able to speculate on why <laughs> Donald Trump hasn't been indicted yet? <laughs> so, no, I left... I left the bureau about two years ago, so I, I was, and have not been on the investigative side for a, a couple of years now. So, um, I, all I could say on any of those cases that I I can't imagine the machinations and scrutiny that goes into. It. Everyone is fully aware that you know you're damned if you do and damned if you don't at this point. There's there's no safe answer on any side. Um, so it's it's probably pretty rough for for everybody. Uh, RS, thank you very much for the donation. Thoughts on former agent Robert Hansen, Eric O'Neill, uh, and the movie Breach? Yeah, I I liked it. I mean, I, you know, I, I think, look, I mean, Hansen obviously was just devastating to, um, you know, to the to the United States and to the Bureau specifically. It's, but I think there, there's something, and I, I can't go into any detail, but I, I, I understand now you know, the feeling that, that people have, um, and they talk about it a little bit in the movie, which I thought was done pretty well, um, about the, someone that you work with, um, that you assumed was, you're on the same team, right? I mean, you know, you guys have been in government, you're doing jobs that are very difficult, you're often doing it for pay that is a quarter or less of what you could make in the private sector. Um, and, you know, you're, you're doing it with people many times because you feel like you're part of a mission, part of a team. Um, and if you suddenly realize that one of your team has been working against you um, the entire time um, and undermining all the things that you believed in, um, it's pretty devastating. And I think that I think that if I, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, I think it captures it well. But you know, obviously, there's some huge intelligence kind of issues with uh, you, know, um, uh, you know impact of what Hansen did. But I think that maybe underappreciated is the impact they had to the organization. Um, yeah. Just the, the feelings of just you know, mistrust and, and just, you know, that you've got someone in your midst that, like, you know, worked against us. Right. That, was, that was, like, kind of the one thing that I noticed uh, James Olsen get a little choked up talking yeah. about was Aldrich Ames. Yeah. He's like, I knew Ames had a problem with alcoholism. And they were I friends. Didn't, I didn't really? say, yeah. I, he's like, I didn't say anything because, you know, I liked him as a person. And he's, he, I think he said it was like the one big oversight, the one lapse that he felt in, in his career. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can understand. I mean, it's one of these things where, again, you think in the movies that it's portrayed as like it's clear, you know, it's someone they're shifty and you know, and all these things. And like, <laughs> it's not. It's 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 often, you know, people who are like all humans are flawed, and they make a series of bad decisions, get themselves in a place. I mean, I don't I don't think Alder James started off as a you know knew he was going to be a traitor for his entire life. And right. He didn't purpose. grow up. He was an eight-year-old laying in bed saying, I want to be an FBI right, like, right. traitor. Yeah. Exactly. And same with Hanson. And so, Ames, yeah. Sorry. But, no, um, but I, you know, and, and so you think about the trajectory that that person goes on to go from a place of where at some point I imagine they believed in what they did and believed that they were a part of it and then to suddenly go to a place where they could betray everyone um, 
you know that it's it's a very it's a very human journey and and it i think it, it it's upsetting and but at at the same time like there there's a piece of it i think that it, we don't really fully understand and have explored like like what that person does psychologically to convince themselves this is okay yeah i mean some some serious cognitive dissonance there they're saying you know that this is you know I'm doing. I mean, Hanson believed he was helping the bureau, right? Hanson was a yeah. curious case. He's not a, a not a normal sort of trader. He uh, yeah, his motivations are more opaque. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, but you know, in, sort of a, from an intel perspective, you know, kudos to the Russians for being you know flexible to deal with someone <laughs> like that, right? I mean, but that's I mean that's part of the game in many ways of like you you have people come to you for all sorts of different reasons of why they want to provide information and you have to figure out if it is a good reason if it's a reason that you can believe in the information can you validate it all these sort of things and and it's it's extremely complicated but it's it's rare that it happens so cleanly that you can just say oh well great this is good and right is good. and if it is it's probably such a low level it's not impactful but when it gets up to that level it's it's horribly complicated right so yeah um uh whiz, whiz thank you very much how do we de uh dissent uh Disincentivize. Yeah, thank uh, deincentivize economic uh, disincentivize economic espionage carried out by our own geopolitical allies. Uh, example: France, uh, Japan, <laughs> Israel. Disincentivize. Yeah, um, I, it's a it's a great question. Um, I I don't think we can disincentivize them. I think we have to like. I think we're going to have to. Um, we just got to put up protections for it. I, you know, I mean, this is a this is the difficult thing. I think with with allies, you know, be it you know, Israel or South Korea or France or whatever, that we we align in many ways, but in their mind, you know, you got to get inside their head, which is, all right, today the U.S. cares about my issues, but will they tomorrow? Right. And you know, so what do I need to do? I need to get everything I can out of this relationship, right? Um, obviously, we don't like that from our perspective. Um, but you you can you can understand why why they see it that way, right? They don't they don't have the, you know, hundreds of years of uh, close relationship like the UK does, um, and that they, they can depend on that's going to be there. Um, but I mean, one way to do it is to you know sort of have a much more open well, a, a couple of different ways. You have a much more open sort of um, you know where we share certain high technology with them, which I think we're starting to do with some places like in Japan. And then the other is they develop their own sort of internal, um, you know, intellectual property regime that is worthwhile. And so that even if a company steals something, you just, you go to Japan and you can sue them. You go to France and you can sue them, right? And so that could happen over time and that's something that the U.S. could require them to, um, you know, sort of enact in order to have access to certain things. Right. Um, and so maybe that's something that the, you know, my successors at the NSC can work on right now. So, um, Jerry, thank you very much. What it, uh who is your favorite Russian writer and why? I could type in Russian, but those guys would butcher that. Yeah. You True. can answer in Russian. <laughs> you can answer in Russian if you want. Jerry, you're showing your colors, man. No. Um, <laughs> um, my favorite Russian writer. I mean, I probably... I, Dostoevsky, I, I would guess, um, and I, I mean, I so I was a Russian literature major um, at, at, at Texas, um, so I, I read a bunch a long time ago, um, and I, I do really like it. It's very, it's very dark, um, but that seems kind of cliche to pick Dostoevsky. I have to think about it a little more. There's some, re, there's some more recent ones that um, are um, that are more interesting, but. Um, and I that is oh wait, let me check the Patreon real quick. Um... 
Isaac, you're asking some really political questions here. Um, so we, we talked about this a little bit, but what was it like being in China, Russia? And how do you compare them? How are they different? And who is harder? Um, yeah, I, I think China was harder um, in a lot of ways. I just, I felt like there was a lot more distance between how we talked about things and how we saw things than, than Russia. Um, it doesn't mean that that was necessarily we're going to come to an agreement with Russia. You know, sometimes the worst fights can be between siblings, right? In some ways, like people that you agree on a lot of different things. But in some ways, just the, the perspective in China that, and, the, and the way that the system worked there, it was just so different. Um, I can tell you, like, one of the things I, I spent a lot of time on is even trying to help them understand if they wanted to, because they had a lot of frustrations, and, and I saw part of my job is helping not only like the U.S. communicate to China, but help China communicate to the U.S. Because in my mind, confusion on either side is not a good thing, right, for, for countries that could eventually get into some sort of hot conflict. Um, and so if I can help them, you know, sort of think about what is important, like, how do you express what matters to you? Like, then I, helping them do that and, and, you know, kind of plug into the U.S. system. And so it, they're actually talking to the people that can hear this and make decisions based on it. Um, but it was, it was, it was difficult. Um, and I, I guess I attribute that to, and not a cultural thing, but Russia at least had kind of gone back to a place where power is a bit more, as much as the security services had a lot of power, it had decentralized quite a bit, right? You had businesses that had a lot of power, business leaders. And so in many ways, it felt a lot more like the U.S. where it was a lot more, there was, you know, there were connections, but it, at least when I was there in 2012 and 2014, it was more like decentralized different areas of power. Um, that's not how it was in China. It was really still sort of as a pyramid. And that part of it, I hadn't really, I mean, I'd been in Russia in 93, but things had already fallen apart. I had never really experienced before kind of being in a place that is, they're not quite totalitarian yet, but they were on their way. And like, you could kind of feel it in a, in a, in a way that was very different. And so being in a totalitarian state, I kind of missed the tail end of the Cold War and that, um, uh, that's what it felt like, the sort of beginnings of it in China. Um, obviously, I'm sitting around talking to the security service, so my experience is different than other people. Right. But um, but uh, that was a major difference, I'd say. When you were when you were there in Russia and China, did you bother doing like surveillance detection, or did you just assume that you were tailed all the time? Yeah. So I I had a kind of I mean sort of a unique, and this is what I would tell people when they'd come to visit from the bureau or from other places. Uh, I was like, do. So we're not running operations. So I was like, do not do surveillance detection. So basically, I'm telling this to the FBI people, you've been on the other side where you've had to watch somebody. Right. And when they make it difficult for you, it's kind of a pain in the ass. Right. right? Like when they're being jerks and they'll cross the street like 50 times and they're just messing. Like then, you know, and so I trying to think about it from, a, from professional courtesy. If I'm going to the zoo, there were times where I would wait because they were slow and they got caught in traffic or they, you know, and so um, I hoped, you know, because look, they had to do a job and they had to make sure that I wasn't going and doing anything untoward or that I wasn't supposed to be doing there. And I wasn't, so I didn't really, it didn't bother me. Um, and I thought that it just make it easier for them to do their job. Yeah. Um, but every now and then they just, they just kind of appear to kind of do a little show of force. Yeah. Um, I can think of one, when I was on my way to the zoo, we were with kids and like, 
turned around, and then there's like six guys just sitting at the fence, just staring at yeah. the time, like probably about like Smoking two feet cigarettes. away. Yeah, basically. Where's Holden? Well, I was, I was like, God, I feel like there's someone watching me. I turn around, yeah, and there's like six guys just sitting there watching. I was like, oh, there you are. And, and every now and then they do that, just you know, kind of make sure you, you know that they're there, right? That sort of thing. Now, yeah. did you ever do the same thing, like walk into a sandwich shop and then just turn around at the counter and wait for them to come in and give a nod? No, I didn't ever want to embarrass them to like make them, um, you know, you know, make them feel like they got got made. Because if that would kind of make it more difficult for them, because then, you know, they don't have the same sort of restrictions, and so there's all sorts of like, you know, they're gonna come in and like, you know, like pee in my bed or something right, like that. Right, right. Toss your apartment. Yeah. yeah, we had a dog. I didn't want right. to kill the dog. Right. I mean, you know, it, it would have just been. I was. I was like, you know, there's, I'm, what am I gonna gain other than just being like, you know kind of a jerk to them. Right. The only thing I would do, and this is so childish, but now that I'm out of the government, I'll say this. Surveillance games, ladies so, and gentlemen. So this wasn't even surveillance. This is, this is me. Just, I would, um, you know, every now and then I would Google something that was, you know, sort of something about Russian men and, you know, inabilities to do certain things. Cause I'm assuming they're reading through all of my Google right. searches. Right. And so, you know, it's all like, you know, my go- you know, Taylor Swift or whatever right. else I'm Googling at the time. Right. And then, you know, it comes in, why do Russian men are, you know, are, are, are they unable to perform? And right. You know, so all these very technical things about, so I just hope they would give them a little bit of a laugh, you know, yeah. that when they're reading through all of my Google searches that they would kind of see that. <laughs> that, that was the only entertainment that part I would do to them. But I, I do that for the FBI agent that monitors this yeah. office. <laughs> Uh, yeah. you know, Holden, this has been awesome, man. I really appreciate you coming in and sharing like some really like uh, unique insights that I don't think too many people have. Oh, my um, and yeah, and I hope the next time you come through New York City, we can we can have you over again. And I mean, there's a lot to discuss here, and obviously these issues are not going away at all. We're we're still going to be talking about this in, in 10, 20 years. We have two more questions, and please uh, thank you everybody much for your donations. Uh, we're not accepting any more after these two. Um, I'm going to, first off, Peter, thank you very much. I never realized that Casey Jones, after working with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, became even more of a badass counterintelligence agent. Another great show. Um, yeah, you forgot your hockey mask. Didn't Casey Jones wear a hockey yeah, mask? Yeah, he, he had hockey sticks yeah. and baseball bats. Yeah. Um, you call this and that over there a family? Uh, and then right now, uh, thank you very much. Um, why won't the FBI give over Seth Rich's laptop? Seth Rich? Oh, oh. I, I don't know. There you have I it. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't involved. There yet. you have it. I don't know. Holden doesn't know. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you, everybody. We really appreciate your questions. And thanks, Holden. We and really appreciate we it. We will see all of you guys uh, on Friday with um, Mr. McCoy. Uh, Air Force 24th STS special ops dude. He'll be here in studio. We're excited to talk to him too. And um, so until then, we'll see you guys. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.